Good morning, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio. It is the 21st of July, 2013, 9.58 a.m. Yes, it's true. We're starting early. <laughs> As most of my girlfriends could have told you, there's a huge amount I can get done in two minutes. Um, just none of it too satisfying. So uh, welcome to all the new listeners. This is, um, I guess we got a, a eight or 9,000 new subscribers, I think. Off the, the truth about... George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, a video which with mirrors is over 800,000 in a week or so. Uh, it's a hot topic, I suppose, and um, had some good feedback uh, from the follow-up videos as well. <clears throat> had a chat with it about, uh, with Peter Schiff as well, which was fun. Uh, it is, of course, a hugely challenging topic. Race is one of these highly volatile issues that wise men avoid and foolish philosophers wade in blindfolded. So, uh, I hope that you're doing well. We have a, um, uh, of course, we have an email set up specifically for questions, which I try to answer in the um, in, in the videos and podcasts. So you can email questions, quandaries, uh, schisms, ambiguities, and skin rashes to mailbag, mailbag at freedomainradio.com. And also, please check out the new message board. It is, well, I guess it's, um, it's a lot of messages with some messages below. <laughs> I mean, I know we've got, we started introducing people to the message board, so like half the screen is taken up with welcome messages. That will diminish over time. It's a very pretty uh, message board. And finally, after only seven years of listening, we have managed to implement a listener rating system. And I have rated myself as Paris Hilton Hot, which I feel is empirical and verifiable. So uh, you might want to check out board.freedomainradio.com. As always, the show relies on your donations. So, fdrurl.com forward slash donate, or just go to freedomradio.com, click on the donate button, and do help us out. I think that we're doing a lot of great good in the world. And you know, with 800,000 or so, you know, if you count the other videos and so on, maybe 900,000 videos, uh, sorry, 900,000 video views, not counting the podcast as well, Count the podcast, probably one and a half million, 1.7 million. You know, that is a big enough impact to shift public opinion to a small degree in the U.S. And, of course, this is a – it would be a ridiculous claim to make in any absolute way, but I think that there was probably a small impact. One of the things that's quite positive about the justice for Trayvon uh, marches and so on is the degree to which – even some of the race hucksters are promoting nonviolence, which is good. And, you know, did the did 1.5, 1.7 million perspectives um, that may have been shifted by the work that uh, was done from Freedom Aid Radio? Well, it probably had a tiny effect. You know, did it stop a few riots? Maybe. Did it, you know, this, this, this was, was really the goal in putting the video out. And that's not a bad day's work to have actually potentially tiny, in a tiny way, shifted public opinion and made the situation a tiny bit less volatile. And of course, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have changed their minds based upon the videos, but I know that a significant portion of people did. You know, they came in with one perspective and they went out with another perspective. And of course, the goal with presenting reason and evidence is not always to change people's minds immediately, of course, right? And it may not even be to change their minds in the long run. One of the goals that I always have is to at least help people to see the other side of things. 
And since the media has been portraying, I was reading this BBC report the other day. Oh, man. Oh, it's such a matrix. It's such a brain fog. Uh, it might as well be uh, in, injecting media Alzheimer's directly into your frontal lobes. I was reading this British report on the, um, I guess, um, hundreds of protests being staged around the U.S., justice for Trayvon and so on. And, you know, the usual idiot and and deceptive memes are thrown in, you know, a, a boy. They always refer to him, Trayvon Martin, as a boy. And, you know, what's funny is that if you were to say to Trayvon Martin or any other, you know, young, tall, healthy black American, if you were to say, come here, boy. <laughs> I mean, how do you think they would react to be called boy when they're five foot eleven? And, uh, you know, a year away from legally voting and that they're legally able to join the military. And although I think that they're not allowed to be shipped overseas, but they can join the military and learn how to shoot a gun uh, and throw grenades and so on uh, at that age. And if you were to say, Trayvon, come here, boy. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine uh, what reaction you would receive calling him a boy? Ah, you see, but when it serves a political agenda then you can call him a boy. So call him a boy. And of course, all the memes got Skittles and iced tea and all this kind of stuff. And they say that he was shot when Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman got into an altercation. Got into an altercation. You know, like they just tripped and fell against each other. Or there was some sort of name-calling, cat-calling. And then they pushed each other. And, you know, like... Although the jury, you know, with self-defense means you have... No culpability in the origin of the attack. No culpability in the origin of the attack. And therefore, George Zimmerman, according to the jury, who heard, what, two and a half weeks of testimony from a wide variety of experts and thought deep and hard and received a huge amount of instruction on how to dispose of the case, um, that they were just wrong. You know, and people who are reading the media are just somehow right. And it really is, read some of the stuff with a critical eye. I have probably read 30 or 40 mainstream news articles on the trial and its aftermath. And and beforehand as well, of course, I read a bunch of it as well. And in not a single one did they ever talk about uh, Trayvon Martin's attack uh, upon George Zimmerman, which uh, the the physical evidence, the forensics, the witness testimony and Zimmerman's testimony and so on all corroborate. Uh, and and that's about as true as you're going to get without, like, head cam footage. You know, if George Zimmerman had been wearing one of those sports cams on his head, then maybe that would be slightly, you know. But this is about as true as things are going to get in this kind of situation. And you can read huge amounts of media without ever, ever finding out that all the evidence and testimony points to the fact that Trayvon Martin attacked George Zimmerman and that George Zimmerman was defending himself against an unprovoked attack. Uh, And and it really is. This is the kind of matrix that we live in. This is a kind of anti-reality, brain-foggy nonsense. And this is the degree to which, you know, a really horrible death. I mean, this is a a terrible, terrible event that, that occurred. And to use this kind of stuff for race baiting, for money making, for political stuff. I mean, everyone's talking about, oh, you stand your ground laws are terrible. They invite racial profiling and so on. But of course, this, this had nothing to do 
with the Trayvon Martin case. It, it was not invoked as a defense, uh, and it was impossible to achieve in reality. Stanley Grant had nothing to do with the Martin Zimmerman altercation. It had nothing to do with it at all. Standard ground is it's sort of related. So there's a castle defense. The castle defense is if somebody comes into your house, you have to assume that they're going to, you are legally allowed in many places to assume that they're going to cause you great bodily harm or death. And you don't have to wait for that to start. If somebody comes into your house, uh, breaks into your house and so on, then you can use uh, uh, force in self-defense without waiting for them to start attacking you instead sort of castle defense. And the standard ground is you have no obligation to retreat if somebody is attacking you, right? So, uh, you know, if, if somebody starts attacking you and in the past, if you had an option to retreat, then you could, uh, you, you would have a harder time claiming self-defense. So the standard ground is you don't have that obligation to retreat. You can stand your ground and use force to defend yourself against an attacker. You don't have the obligation to try and run away to try and get away. And there were a wide variety of reasons that that was implemented. It doesn't hugely matter. Um, you, you don't know if the guy's got a knife he can throw or a gun. So to trying to run away is not always that great an idea because then you expose your back to your attacker and uh, and so on. But none of this had anything to do with Zimmerman. Zimmerman had no possibility of retreating, again, according to all the evidence and testimony, eyewitness testimony and so on. He had no capacity to retreat because he had a 160-pound young man on his chest, sitting on his chest, and attacking him. So the possibility of retreat didn't exist. So everyone who brings up the stand your ground stuff is just using the horrible death of a young man for political gain. And that's about as low as you can go. It's just horrendous. It's just horrendous. Um... I mean, using a corpse for political gain uh, is just, just, I mean, it's wretched. Wretched beyond words. Anyway, I don't want to spend the show on that, though certainly if you have questions or comments, I'm happy to hear them. Thanks again to Mike for taking over. Thanks again to James for his long stewardship of the show. Let's move on to the first caller. All right, Cornelius, you were up first. Go ahead. Hello. Hi, Cornelius. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty okay. Uh, by the way, about my name, Cornelius, do you know uh, the, the reference, uh, which which reference I'm making? To, oh, this, uh, is, is this your, your FDR stage name? Yeah. Cornelius, it's from Fight no. Club. Oh, who's Cornelius in Fight Club? I don't remember. Yeah, it's 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 um, the nickname uh, the main character gives himself to go to the, 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 re, the reunions at the start of the film. Oh, not the reunions, the support groups, the support right? The support groups, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, just to address something, I'm, I'm French-Canadian, and I have some level of social anxiety, so you'll have to bear with me with my for my English. <laughs> oh, listen, you're doing great. And I must tell you, I mean, I get this comment a lot, oh, I wish my English was better. Mm. The only languages I've ever been able to learn are computer languages, and I've learned like eight or ten of them. I have tried to learn French, I have tried to learn uh, German, and it is... Not, not an enjoyable thing. Some people, there was an old explorer named Sir Richard Burton, no relationship to uh, Mr. Elizabeth Taylor, but um, he learned like 18 or 20 languages or something like that. Some people have this polyglot skill. Uh, I, I have a, an intense admiration for people who fluently learn other languages, and your English sounds fantastic. So, um, you know, you may feel like you're 10% below, but for me, you're 90% above my skill set. And uh, so I hugely admire what you're able to do. It's a, it's a, that to me is a kind of minor miracle, you know, like people who can play. Uh, slow blues 
uh, it's uh, it's really pretty amazing. So go ahead. Well, um, I, I mainly wanted to talk about my well, some personal issues. Um, sure. Yeah, it's a lot of it has got to do with my personal development. Um, first of all, it's a it's a matter of uh, of mood uh, of mood swings and uh, issues with uh, issues with my family, which which I have started defooing with. And uh, it's been a very bumpy road. And uh, what one of, one of the incidents was. Uh, uh, a fight between me and my father. We had a few fights together, and uh, the the last one happened a month ago, and I never spoke to him again because I have a restraining order. Since I basically basically went up and uh, slapped him at the oh, so he sorry he put a restraining order upon you. Uh, yeah, the police came uh, to his house because I came here. Uh, we started fighting verbally. And uh, things things escalated, and uh, I, I ended up slapping him because I was so enraged at him, at his reaction, and at his uh, uh, ju just the way he was ignoring me. And uh, it ended up uh, just in the worst ways I could have imagined. And so, that's rough. Yeah. Uh, now you know. I mean, you know that you did in that case initiate physical aggression, right? Yeah, well, I I've been trying to like I I don't know if I'm trying to overanalyze, but uh, of course I'm I I've been trying to look at the emotional uh, causes of my act of violence. But by the way, my my yeah, uh, well, my father had used violence on me before. Um, uh, it had not been so long ago, but yeah, I. Uh, well, is this your conclusion? Like. Do you, do you think it needs to it needs further uh, examination of the situation? Well, no, that's I mean, parental relationships, of course, have so much history to them that if um, uh, if you and slapped your father, now this is not yeah. an egregious violation of the non-aggression principle. I didn't shoot him in the kneecaps or something like that, but um, verbal aggression is still separate from physical aggression, right? In, in terms of moral stuff, right? Now, were you uh, spanked or hit by your father when you were growing up? Uh, I, I have no, uh, I have no recollection of my father uh, physically assaulting me. But uh, he was, I, I'd say he, he was an enabler. Uh, it was my mother who did, who, who did so. Right. Well, he was now. Parents, sorry, parenting is one of these areas where I don't believe that that. If, if the father allows the mother to hit the children, I view the father as morally culpable as well. And if the mother allows the father to hit the children, I view the mother as morally culpable as well. And the reason for that is that if you see a crime in progress and you enable that crime, then you are aiding and abetting. Right, aiding and abetting a crime is itself a crime. Now, this is in the status paradigm, but I mean, I think that would be pretty true in any just legal system. You know, if you drive the getaway car, as I've argued before, if you drive the getaway car, you are actually enabling the bank robbery. I mean, you don't even go into the bank, you're just driving a car, which is not illegal. But the bank robbery is only occurring because you're willing to drive the car away. If they didn't have a getaway driver, there'd be no, no bank robbery. 
And so if you are the, the co-parent of somebody who is harming a child, then you are aiding and abetting because you are a witness uh, and you are not doing anything to protect that helpless independent child. Now, you know, tragically, of course, in a lot of countries, hitting children is not illegal. Um, I mean, here in Canada, I think the law is from the age of two to 12, you can hit children, just not with implements and not in the face. I guess that's what they call progress from the medieval world. So it may not be a crime if the child is not hit with implements and not hit on the face. I mean, to me, there's still a moral crime. It's just not a legal crime. You know, in the same way, you can have legal crimes like smoking marijuana, which are not moral crimes because there's no initiation of force involved. But we tend to put our parents into different moral categories. But I don't really think that's true. I think that co-parenting is the lowest common denominator. Like whatever the worst crime is that goes on, I feel that both parents, right? But I would make the argument that both parents are morally responsible. So sorry for that long sort of sidebar, but um, I just wanted to to mention that. That if your if your mother hit you, now did she hit you with implements? Did she hit you on the face, or was it, um, I guess, in conformity with the general legal rules of hitting children in Canada? It was in compliance with uh, with uh, uh, yeah, I guess everything you could imagine. That is uh, every law. Uh, but but morally it was very it, it was it was quite quite repugnant uh, it was it was a uh, quite terrifying uh, uh, it was very um, it, it was aimed at uh, creating an effect on me on my on my conscience it, uh, uh, I, I I really believe that she was trying to manufacture some some sort of memories uh, for me so um, she wanted it she wanted it to to basically stick with me. She uh, she ran after me in the house. Uh, uh, well, I I'm gonna um, uh, tell you a, a specific incident. Uh, she was getting a divorce with my father, and I I, I just uh, she was uh, basically um, talking behind his back. She was uh, saying things about him to me and my sister in the house. Uh, we could we could hear her, her voice no matter where we were. So I came out came out of the bathroom. I, I had just taken my shower, and uh, I uh, I simply sighted uh, sigh, sighted at her, and she she ran after me up the stairs to my room. I'm sorry, you you said you sighted at her. I'm not sure uh, what yeah, that means. Yeah, I, I just don't know how to pronounce the word. <laughs> uh, I well, can you give just, a description of yeah, the I, action? I, I just went, you know. I just, oh, sided her. I was, sorry, sorry. I, yeah, that's no no problem. Side, I you was sided just her. Ex exasperated. Yeah. Just just showed how exasperated I was from the whole situation, and it was uh, she she uh, she took it as as a sort of intimidation from me. I know she uh, it, it couldn't possibly appear that way, but she but I she she started running after me to my room. Uh, screaming at me uh, as usual, uh, st stepping on the floor as, as hard as she could. Uh, uh, then yeah, she uh, as usual. She her the spanking was very violent. It was very uh, re repetitive, and you know uh, uh, when you see it happen on TV, it's always a, a controlled thing, uh, a sort of disciplined thing, but it was an assault. That was in compliance yeah. with the uh, with law. And how old were you at the time? Uh, I was around ten years old, 
and it, it started earlier. Right. You know, I, I was confined. And did she, yeah. of course, was there any was there any explanation, or was it really just a kind of lashing out? Yeah, it was. Uh, the, the, there was never any explanation. Uh, even the the parents who disciplined their children would would tell you that that they were incompetent because they had just they just had nothing to say. They had no. Uh, it was always just random when I was punished. I did, uh, well, well, when I was confined to my room, I I never knew how long how, how long it would be. Yeah. I'm incredibly sorry for all of that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I get this, of course, all the time. People say, well, you see, spanking, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you explain to the child beforehand, you sit them down, you give them a few swats, you hug them afterwards. It's very, it's always portrayed as a very controlled, quote, reasonable or rational kind of thing. You know, like you're just giving some medicine. But boy, that's that's almost never how it plays out in the real world. Like in the real world, the parents just lash out. It's a, it's a pretext for something nastier. Yeah, it's it's just a way of um, uh, of it, it's like the way people describe spanking. You know, well, there's a difference between you know beating your child and and a few light swats on the butt. Well, you know, if you think that spanking is a few light swats on the butt, then you don't really know what spanking is. Right? Spanking, of course, is behavior modification about essential and important issues. Right? So what do people say about spanking? Oh, you see, if your children get run into traffic or grab a hot pot from the stove or bloody bloody. So, so it has to be something that is scary and behavior modifying enough that it can save a child's life from running into the street or grabbing a hot pot or whatever. And a few light swats aren't going to do that. So it has to be something that is impressionable and scary and terrifying enough for the child to permanently alter their behavior to save their life. But then, of course, people always just lie about it and say, well, it's just a few light swats and so on. It's like, well, that's, I mean, that's just, that's just not, that's not spanking. That's not what spanking is. Spanking has to change behavior about life and death situations. At least that's the way it's always portrayed. Well, I... And therefore, it has to be scary enough for the child to permanently change his or her behavior in life-threatening situations. And so it has to be humiliating and painful and scary enough to permanently change a child's behavior. And that is not a few light spots on the butt. That's, I mean, it's just not how it works. It's not, it's not what it's designed for. And so uh, this is just, you know, people with a bad conscience can either face their conscience or lie about what they did. Uh, and most people, of course, tend to the latter. But sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, to, to be honest, I feel kind, kind of wretched uh, at, uh, the uh, at me at me slapping my father. I, I mean, that's the reaction I'm getting right now. I feel uh, uh, like I'm I'm um, uh, I just denounced myself, and uh, you know, I never really felt terrible about it. Uh, I just don't know. Well, look, I mean, I think clearly that was not the right thing to do. No, I mean, I, I understand. You know, family history is volatile and so on. And I, I like, I really get that, right? And I'm sure he was being really annoying or maddening or frustrating. I get that. But, and of course, the irony is that, that you would be hit repetitively as a child and you couldn't call the cops because it was all legal, right? But you slap your father once and suddenly, right, the whole weight of the law comes pouring down on top of you, right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's pretty... That's a, that's a pretty ridiculous situation to be in, if that makes any sense, right? So you're a helpless child, you get hit all over the place, but, you know, one slap and your dad is an adult, and suddenly 
right, all the law comes pouring down on you, right? I mean, certainly when it comes to parents and you, you are much more sinned against than sinning, right? Yeah. You've been hit a lot more by your mom than in terms of like hitting your dad, right? And your dad condoned all of this, I assume, and certainly didn't intervene to stop it. So, you know, like 500 hits against you, no law. One hit against your dad, ah, all the law in the world comes pouring down on top of you, right? quite unfair uh, to be well you know what is interesting about that of course and tragic but what is interesting about that and i think what you can learn from that is that your father has no problem in fact not only has no problem he initiates an incredibly strong response to a family member hitting another family member right yeah Except when it was your mom hitting you, right? Right. So I think what this does is it says that your father has, you know, he has very high moral standards in that family members should not hit each other in any way, shape, or form. In fact, one slap is dealt with not through talking about it or talking it out, but through bringing in the authorities and getting a restraining order. That's how passionately strong your father feels about family members hitting each other. Except with your mom and you, when you were a helpless and dependent child, right? That was fine. And I think that's the, I don't know how to put it nicely, the values disparity that probably would be worth meditating upon. Well, it, it, it's a great struggle to, under, to, uh, to, uh, to understand how it's, it's possible that such a break within the mind can can occur in one of these people because uh, why is it why, why is it important to understand that because well from a psychological standpoint <laughs> because it's interesting but yeah well, okay but why I mean <laughs> let's just say it's hypocrisy why, why is hypocrisy important to understand well maybe it's just a personal thing because I um, I uh, it's just no it, it's just that I can't picture myself uh, really, really living that way, and I, uh, I can't, I, I can't picture anyone living that way, but yeah, I know it exists, so there's no question to be asked to be asked about it. Look, I mean, there are to me, it's just my opinion, right? But to me, there are like two basic kinds of personality structures in the world, and the first personality structure strives for consistency. And, and when inconsistency is perceived, discomfort results. And the discomfort continues until the consistency is achieved. Right? And so this, this is people who have a drive towards integrity. They have like a gravity well called integrity. And, you know, it's a struggle. I mean, but when somebody points out inconsistencies in values or behavior, or opposites in values and behavior, then there's, you know, like a, a, a sand, a, a grain of sand in an oyster. There's an irritation. There's a nagging sense. The Jiminy Cricket conscience says, wait a minute. You say this, but you do the opposite. Or you say this, and you also say the opposite. Or you do this, and you also do the opposite. And there's a discomfort that is generated from that and then through that 
this is how you progress as a human being, is there's discomfort with opposite values, with hypocrisy. And unfortunately, these kinds of people remain quite rare, <laughs> quite rare, quite rare. Now, there's another type of person, and the only thing that they're concerned about is advantage in the moment or surviving the moment. And they will say whatever they need to say to gain advantage or to survive the moment. And every moment is unconnected to every previous moment. Right? And there's no continuity in their lives. So, I mean, like you and I, I think we probably have some similarities this way. So our life is like a, it's like a stream, right? The stream is all directly connected to what came before. And there's a current, there's leaves floating down it, there's fish swimming around, crayfish and all this kind of stuff, right? And, you know, pollution upstream flows down. So our stream is all connected and there's, there's continuity. But that's not how most people operate. Most people operate without connection to the past and without connection to any prior statements. And what they do is they conform to whatever gives them the most power in the moment or to whatever helps them avoid the most consequences in the moment. And whatever helps them survive the moment is what they say. And they, of course they'll say it as principles and so on, but they use principles the way that you and I would use an oar in a boat, right? When we just use the oar to row someplace and then we throw the oar in the bottom of a boat, we don't carry it with us. It's not like a, <laughs> an obligation to be – we don't use the oar in a boat. We only use – sorry, we don't use the oar in a car or in an airplane. We only use the oar in a boat. And there's just whatever will give them advantage in the moment, whatever gives them satisfaction in the moment. And fundamentally, it's all – self-indulgent and incredibly destructive to everyone around them, right? And so, you know, when your parents have power over you and, and if they are this way inclined, then they say, well, you've got to tell me the truth. The truth is, you know, whenever they, you've got information that they need or want, you say, you tell me the truth. Truth is a value. Truth is a virtue, right? But then if you're a kid and you're in some social gathering and you say something, you know, about Aunt Edna's wart or something that embarrasses your parents, then they get angry at you and they say, that's rude. Okay, it's true. You did say the truth. She does have a very prominent and hairy wart on her chin. That is, everybody's been talking about it behind her back for years. She won't get it dealt with. But you, when you talk about it as a child, you're being rude. So now truth is not a value. So when the parent wants some information from you, they'll say, truth is a virtue. Honesty is a virtue. Tell me the truth. But then when you tell the truth about something that is uncomfortable for your parents, then they will say, well, that's rude. You're being impolite. How selfish. Think about other people's feelings. Okay, so truth is not a value. Right, and then they'll say, well, you know, you've got to take responsibility for your actions. You know, if you hit that boy, you've got to confess and you've got to take your punishment. Right, don't lie. If you hit someone, don't minimize, don't lie. Don't make excuses. Okay, and then you become an adult and you confront them about spanking. And they say, well, it was right. And then when you prove to them that, you know, it kind of wasn't right, you know, both scientifically and morally, then they'll say, well, I was doing the best I could. And they start to make excuses and start to minimize and start to avoid exactly what they punished you for as a child. Right. 
and you can say, well, this is hypocritical and so on. But I don't really know what that means. Because for people to be hypocritical, they almost have to have integrity as some kind of value. You know, it's like it's like calling a dandelion fluff confused because it changes direction when the wind changes. Most people are just trying to maximize winning in the moment and minimize loss in the moment. And sure, they use principles because principles are very powerful to do that, but not because they have any respect for principles or not because you could hold them to their principles. But merely because principles help you win a disagreement in the moment. Right? So parents say, well, I did the best I could with the knowledge that I had. But if you had tried making that excuse when you were a kid about failing a spelling test, you say, your mom says, you got a spelling test in a week, you got to study. You say, eh, I'll get to it. I need a spelling test in five days, you got to study, man. I'll get to it. Got a spelling test in two days, one day, spelling test tomorrow, spelling test today. Go do well. Did you study? Well, kind of. And you go fail your spelling test, and your parents say, you failed that spelling test. How come you failed that? I must have reminded you 50 times you had to study. Why did you fail that spelling test? Why are you getting mad at me? I did the best I could with the knowledge that I had. I just didn't happen to have much knowledge about the spelling test because I didn't study. And would they then say, well, okay, sure, you did the best you could with the knowledge that you had, so that's perfectly understandable. I'm sorry that I got upset with you. Good job. No. But when it comes to parents who hit or parents who yell or parents who abandon or neglect, and they say, well, I did the best I could with the knowledge I had. It's like, what, sorry, did you not know you were going to have a child? Did you not know that parenting was something that you should study about? Can you point to me the books that you read about parenting that said that yelling and screaming and hitting and neglecting was, was great? Um, and they say, well, you know, I, I didn't really read any books about parenting. It's like, okay, well, when I was a kid and I had a spelling test that I didn't study for, you got mad at me for being unprepared. What's more important, a spelling test? or the molding and shaping of an entire human consciousness from pre-birth to adulthood? Is it more important to be prepared for a spelling test when I'm six, or is it more important to be prepared for parenting as an adult? I mean, I have lots of theories about parenting. I still read tons of books on parenting. I kept them all. I'll point them out to Izzy. When she gets older, she say, well, what informed your parenting choices? Well, uh, there were these books, these theories, these approaches, my own reasoning, my own moral arguments. And... You know, I'll tell her about that even now. She says, why? why are you doing this? Well, this is my theory. We'll have a discussion about it. <laughs> by the by, it's just a cute story the other day. She was uh, in the back of the car. She looked pretty serious. I said, are you sad? And she said, no, Daddy, I'm, I'm just resting my smile. <laughs> and so I just wanted to sort of point that out, that trying to figure out people who only conform to winning in the moment, to getting what they want, to satisfying their urges in the moment. So the parents are angry, they just lash out and hit you. And then later when they point out when you point out that, that was wrong and bad, they'll just make up some other nonsense to escape that conversation and to win in that particular moment. And then if some other thing comes up, they'll just say whatever they need to say to win in that particular moment, whether it's fogging or whether it's getting aggressive or whether it's um becoming critical or whether it's bursting into tears, all they're trying to do is win the moment. Not have integrity, not have consistency, not have predictability, not have values, not have virtue, but win in the moment. Now, trying to figure out what makes people tick who only want to win 
in the moment is like trying to figure out the flight path of a dandelion fluff in a storm. You can't predict it because all the dandelion fluff is doing is responding to the wind. There's no flight path. There's no flying. There's no what I would consider consciousness and certainly no conscience. There's only winning in the moment. And you can submerge yourself into the, quote, psychology of people who are trying to win in the moment. And I doubt you'll ever come up from air for air. And I doubt you'll ever see anything down there because it's all just about winning in the moment. And let me just sort of finish off by saying this one, this one quick test that you can do to find out if people are like this in your life. It's a quick test. Again, this is all just my idiot amateur theories, but, you know, testing, empirical tests are very important. Uh, people who just try and win in the moment lack empathy, I think, fundamentally. Because winning at the moment, in the moment, almost always means at the expense of someone else. And if you prefer to win in the moment at the expense of other people, particularly your children, then clearly you lack empathy. Because the harm you're doing to others in defending your own inconsistent actions is very damaging to them. So if you lack empathy. So the best way to figure out if people only want to win in the moment or whether they have any integrity is to say, if you have an issue, let's say with your mom, if you have an issue with your mom, it could be anyone in your life. We're just talking about moms and dads here. It's quite easy. All you have to do is say, mom, it's really important that we, for me, it's really important that we have a conversation about spanking, but I'm not going to pester you about it. I'm not going to bother you about it. I'm going to let it sit with you. And when you're ready, we can have that conversation. I'm just telling you that it's really important, but I'm never going to bring it up again. I'm just going to leave it with you. And when you're ready to talk about it, we'll talk about it. Now, let's go out and have a fun day or let's go to the movies or whatever it is, right? Just tell the person that it's important to you, but you're not going to nag them about it. You're not going to bother them about it. And when they're ready, then they can come and talk to you. And you just leave it there. Now, if the person has integrity and has empathy, then they will remember that you really want to talk about this. And they will think about it and they will plan a time and they will prepare themselves and they will maybe read books or look into research or whatever it is. But then they will come back to you and initiate that conversation because it's important to you. And they have empathy for what is important to you. And they're willing to do things that are uncomfortable because they're important to you. And then, yay, you know, woohoo, you know, that's fantastic. That's significant evidence towards the possession of conscience and empathy. Ah, but if on the other hand you say, it's really important to me that we talk about X, even though I know it's uncomfortable to you, but I will let you determine when, and I will let you bring it up, and I'm never going to bring it up again. Now, if it never comes up again, well, I think that's your answer. That's somebody who only wants to win in the moment and is not willing to do something uncomfortable for them for the sake of your peace of mind tells you, I think, everything you need to know about their level of empathy, about their level of sympathy, and I would argue really about their level of love and their level of integrity. And, you know, neither of one of these is 100%, but it's not 0% either. Significant pieces of information. Um, as long as we nag people, then we're like central planners in an economy. We don't know if they're responding to us because they care about us or because we're nagging them. This is why nagging is so destructive. Nagging is, is always a way of avoiding the truth about the other person's level of compassion and curiosity and integrity. Uh, we nag because we're afraid that if we don't nag, we're going to get the truth about the other person and their level of care for us. And so that, that would be my suggestion uh, about, about ways 
ways to approach this. And I certainly would strongly advise against trying to figure out patterns of behavior in people who only want to win in the moment. Sorry, end of end of speech. Well, it's very it's very interesting, and it uh, it's got a lot to do with my parents. What you the the kind of life uh, you you've described that these people have, and I think my parents are very far down that path. And uh, after having lived for so long with them, I I I really don't think they can come back from it. I think they they've lost their their uh, they they they've they've pretty much lost them themselves down that path. Yeah, that is it. I mean, sorry to hear that. And that is a pretty terrifying path. Another way of, of telling it, too, is if somebody's really angry, at you, let's say your mom is really angry at you. And then the phone rings and her anger almost immediately vanishes and she becomes sweet as sugar to whoever's on the other line of the phone. That's another example of somebody who's just trying to win in the moment, right? Yes. Well, well yeah, uh, that, that, that's another thing uh, she, uh, she always did. They they used the the we did the best uh, we, we could uh, argument everybody did it was so popular in my family and uh, this um, yeah my my mother would would uh, she it's almost like my my mother was a bipolar sometimes uh, I I don't know uh, how to, uh, what what kind of metaphor I can make but uh, she, yeah she uh, it's like she she had these extreme um, mood swings but it was just um, a great manipulation, a great distortion of her own uh, um, mood. She, 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 she just doesn't have any personality. That's, that, I think that's another thing with those people. There's just a, a sort of facade of, uh, of, um, of neutrality, of tense, of tense neutrality. I, I mean, these people just don't know what to do with their lives. And they, they can just, they're like comedians. Do. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, except chameleons, of course, do what they do as a defensive thing. This is usually, I mean, this is a defensive thing, but it's a, it's really at the expense of other people's sanity, particularly their children's mental health. Right? It's uh, it's very damaging to others to to constantly be maneuvering to be uh, in the right in the moment. Uh, it's it's very very dis it's very disturbing for for kids, and it's really hard to respect people like that. Well, well. Speaking of facades, I thought I could, I thought I could uh, dive, dive under the facade that I'm sort of uh, that, that I've been talking about since the start of the show. Uh, like what led up to my uh, to the emotional issues I have today, just briefly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, that that's something I wanted to talk about. Uh, because uh, I, it didn't come out of the blue when I slapped my father. There were lots of uh, it, it was there was so much repressed anger that was brought up in me, and uh, I, I don't know if my father knew it or if my father knew it or not. But um, I, I think it's something I, uh, as a child, I wanted to do uh, for so long ju just to assert myself, and it, it it just came out the wrong way. But yeah. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. And um, certainly if you are in a relationship with someone that you have the urge to be physically violent with, 
that's not a good place to be. I couldn't get out, but yeah, I know it was the right thing to do get, to get, just get out. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I mean, I think that's not controversial in any way, shape or form that if you're in a relationship with someone where you feel a strong urge towards physical violence, that that's not a good relationship to be in until that problem is, is resolved in one way or another. So like in, in a weird way, your dad is actually kind of doing the right thing. I mean, I don't know about the restraining order and the cops and all that kind of stuff, but um, if you are so frustrated by your father that you have the urge to physically hit him, well, that's obviously, I mean, good heavens. I mean, that's, if you sort of think about that, it's sort of a a husband-wife scenario, wife-husband scenario. I mean, that's not good, right? Um, So I I think, uh, I hope that you'll get some, some, some therapy about this and talk to a therapist about this. But yeah, clearly that's not where you want any kind of relationship to be is where you, you know, you have to kind of white knuckle your way to not hit people. Well, I, I've been seeing a therapist for at least a year now. And, uh, and about uh, the violent impulses I have uh, towards my father, was a bit, cre- uh, a bit terrifying uh, to see myself think about those things. But, but I just, uh, I, um, a lot of time in my apartment, uh, I, I've had some, uh, episodes of uncontrollable rage, especially sure. after speaking to him on the phone and seeing how uh, how I'm I was sort of trying to argument with him. Uh, I was br- bringing bringing myself down to his level, and uh, um, I, I just felt so manipulated when I was being hung up on the face uh, when he he hung in my face. I, I just true true things. I... Well, sorry, and the other thing I would suggest too is I don't want to tell you what your experience was, of course, but what has, what struck me from the very beginning of your story was that you said that you were enraged by his uh, ignoring you yeah. or not responding to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a logical case to be made that neglect is worse than anything for a child. Uh, that ne- neglect is worse than anything for a child because most children will act out in negative ways to gain parental attention rather than be ignored like they would rather have negative attention than no attention which means that for a child no attention is the worst thing and we also know of course because um, children will submit even to sexual abuse rather than confess and risk losing their parents or being neglected by their parents or being abandoned by their parents. Uh, and biologically, it makes sense, right? If your parents become indifferent to you as a child, biologically, they'll stop taking care of you and feeding you and you die, right? So I just wanted to uh, to point out that if neglect is the worst thing for children to experience, and I, I think it is, if neglect is the worst thing for children to experience, then if your father was ignoring you and you acted out in a negative way in order to get his attention, and you sure did get his attention, then that follows that particular paradigm, right? That follows that particular pattern that we would rather have negative attention from our parents than no attention. Right. So, listen, I'm so sorry. I, I know this is a big topic, but I want to make sure that we get, get onto the other callers today. Um, I'm glad that you're talking to a therapist. I'm incredibly sorry about what's happening to your family. Okay, I, I'm so sorry. What a, what a mess. What a difficult and, and tragic situation that is to be in. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry that this is the maze you have to find your way out of. 
Um, I mean, there are good things that come out of trying to find your way out of these kinds of mazes, so it's not all negative, but this is not exactly how we want to grow and learn. So I'm, I'm really sorry about all of that. Well, thank you, Stefan, for uh, for all the truth that you brought to the world so so far. I, I think it's of great value, and I'm looking well, thank forward you. to donate when I have the, uh, the the possibility to do so. Well, I appreciate that. Don't rush. Pay your therapist first. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, that's the most important thing. I would say this in general. Certainly, I don't want anybody to go hungry or to not get the things that they need. In your case, I would save your money for therapy. And if you want to donate at some point, you know, a year or two or three down the road, that's fantastic. But um, the most most important thing is to take care of yourself during this incredibly challenging time in your life. So, uh, you know, if you're desperate to do something for FDR, you can share some videos or whatever it is, stuff that doesn't cost you any money. But really, really focus on um, taking the resources you have and applying them to help you navigate this incredibly challenging time in your life. So I appreciate that thought. I really do. But uh, I would be much happier if you paid your therapist first. Well, I'm glad for the sympathy uh, that I just received, which comes as a, a change, because I've uh, I've really never had any sympathy in this whole thing. I've been seen, seen as a monster, uh, sure. and I think it's hypocrisy because, um, I mean, who doesn't have violent impulses? Uh, people are going to vote for governments who point guns at people, uh, and uh, that's the, the only reason why they, they stay there. Uh, so... I don't think people know who they are, so they can't really assert any sort of behavior. But uh, I'm very happy about this conversation. Uh, I think it was very truthful for a change. Well, I'm very glad for that. Okay. And, you know, parents define the relationship. Um, They they just do. I mean, now that I've been a parent for... Four and a half years, it's, I'm even more clear about that than I was beforehand. It's something I always believed. But parents define the relationship. And uh, uh, if there's dysfunction in the relationship, I mean, you just look to the parents first. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, thank you so much for your call. Wish you the very best of luck. And uh, I'm very glad that you're going to at least not be in a situation where you're tempted to violence um, in, in the near future. And I would certainly recommend avoiding uh, relationships where that, where that occurs. So thank you so much. And Mike, who do we have up next? All right, Tim, you're up next. Go ahead, Tim. Hey, Steph, I've got a question about parenting uh, as it relates to being a new parent. Uh, Funny enough, I actually, uh, my wife and I met you at a convention in Dallas about a year ago, and I believe, uh, like, one of us had casually mentioned, hey, we were thinking about being parents, and at the time, my wife was actually pregnant with twins. We didn't know at the time. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, so I actually met four people. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, I, actually, I one of know. the babies is in the room with us right now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Twins. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. You know, I just tell you, I mean, I think because we weren't the youngest parents on the planet, part of us was like, hey, you know, if we have twins, that'd be kind of cool. Another part of us is like, oh, if we have twins. Ah! <laughs> so, yeah, it wasn't uh, even on our radar, you know. But anyway, uh, so it, it's awesome. Uh, but one, one of the reasons I'm, I'm calling in today is uh, the twins, they're, they're almost six months. They'll, they'll be six months at the end of this month. And um, uh, we, you know, went, went into this as far as uh, sleep and, and nighttime activities uh, where we were very against not, you know, picking our children up when they were crying or, uh, you know, we, we, we've had a lot of family members, you know, 
oh, just let them cry it out and, you know, they'll get over it and, and they won't remember any of this and and all, all that kind of stuff. And and so kind of one of the debates that we've had is, you know, as they're getting older now, uh, their sleeping has kind of even declined. I think one night I counted, I think we got up like 31 times between 11 and 5 or 6 a.m. or something. And uh, and so, but, you know, some weeks are better, you know, some nights are better, uh, some nights are, are, are just horrible. And um, so I, I know that you dealt, uh, I think very briefly, you had mentioned uh, in a podcast or something about sleep training. And I, I'm kind of more, I mean, I, I can get all the advice I want from my pediatrician or, or from parenting books, but really like philosophically, uh, we're having trouble with, with kind of, you know, doing anything other than, you know, what we're currently doing. And uh, just kind of wanted to get some of your thoughts on that, because I know that you had mentioned uh, you had kind of gone down that path at one time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, we did. Uh, we did go down. Uh, I think my daughter was eight or nine months old and, uh, it was the same, same kind of issue, just getting up dozens of times a night. And, uh, it was not good for her, uh, to get that little sleep. Uh, it was not good for, uh, you know, my wife, um, to, to, I mean, I would get up sometimes too, but it was mostly her. It was not good for her. And, um, so of course, you know, we did the research and we got, uh, what's called a sleep doula in, yeah, but um, a sleep expert in to sort of give us, give us feedback and all that. We did the research and what we came up with or what we sort of understood was that, you know, some children will settle in and learn how to sleep and, and some children won't. Now, if a child doesn't learn how to sleep, in other words, if they don't learn how to self-soothe themselves back to sleep, then they can kind of get addicted to the parent coming and that association is then, well, I'm awake and they kind of panic because they don't know how to get themselves back to sleep without the parent coming in. And if there are sleep problems for children, uh, which aren't dealt with, in other words, if the children don't learn how to self-soothe themselves back to sleep, then the studies that, that I read uh, pointed out that, that you can actually trace these sleep problems all the way to college age, right? So if, if, the, if the children don't learn how to self-soothe, or, or the infants or the babies don't learn how to self-soothe themselves back to sleep then their sleep remains disturbed and children need sleep in the same way that they need food, right? Sleep is, you know, particularly the REM sleep is essential for the developing brain. You understand, I'm just talking about this all amateur hour as usual. And so, um, and we, we didn't want, we, we, we didn't want that uh, for her. We didn't want that for us. Uh, but primarily it was for, for Izzy that we, we, we didn't want her to go through life with sleep problems because I mean, that's, that's pretty rough. And so of course it's her job as a, as parents to make sure that she gets what she needs. And sometimes that's uncomfortable for her, right? So she has her immunizations. Those are uncomfortable for her. She tries new vegetables. <laughs> that's uncomfortable for her. If she were, you know, throwing up violently, we may have to take her to hospital and have her um, receive liquids intravenously that would be uncomfortable for her but that would be necessary for her health you know, we take her to the dentist that is uncomfortable for her but it's necessary for her oral health oral hygiene and so on we floss her teeth which is uncomfortable for her but you, know, you you sort of get the pattern right so you can do things which are uncomfortable for your child if um you know a certain sort of number of criteria have been met which we sort of don't have to get into in great detail here but um, we did, uh, after trying literally everything, 
uh, and having experts in and reading every book we could get our hands on, uh, we did sleep train her. And she's great. You know, she sleeps fine. Um, she's happy. She's secure. She's connected. And now she sleeps uh, really well. And that uh, is a, a huge relief for us because we, you know, we need to give her sleep in the same way we need to give her food and, and medical attention when, when necessary. So um, it, it was, of course, a, a horrible decision. And it's nothing that um, we took lightly. And, uh, you know, we certainly did try everything under the sun. And I think like most parents, we were like, oh, you know, we, <laughs> so it's uncomfortable for us if she gets up 10 times a night or whatever. But, you know, we'll, we'll muscle through it and so on. But um, it actually also became, you know, we were so, so sleep deprived that I was not convinced that we were being great parents when we were that sleep deprived. And, you know, other things too, like, you know, sleep deprivation for parents makes driving more dangerous and your reaction times are slower and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so there was a wide variety of reasons that uh, we did it and um, she cried um, when she was being sleep trained and then she learned that she could get herself back to sleep. And, uh, she did. And, um, now of course, if she's upset at night, we'll go and, and comfort her. And because that's not, you know, 10 times a night, but you know, maybe once every two or three nights. So, um, and, and we all always, when she goes to sleep, you know, I will, um, sometimes my wife and I will both, mo mostly it's, we'll both do it. You know, we'll go and sit with her. We'll read with her. We'll chat about the day. And uh, she cuddles up with us, and we don't leave until she's fallen asleep. And that's just great family time, and it's a great time where we're not too busy with other things, and we can actually have some really great chats and tell some great stories and all that. I'm currently reading uh, to Izzy uh, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, and uh, she's uh, got lots of questions about <laughs> I mean, I'm obviously translating the language a little bit on the fly, but she's just loving uh, the book Mr. Bingley. <laughs> she finds a very funny name. So, again, I, I can't advise you in any professional context, but I can certainly relate to you the decisions that, that we made. I, I was very sorry that that decision had to be uh, made in that way, but I certainly think it was the right decision. And uh, I was sorry for the discomfort that it caused my daughter, but she began to, uh, she began to get the sleep that she, she needed, that her brain needed for its development and her body needed for its development as well. And um, now she's in the 85th percentile in terms of height and the 50th percentile in terms of weight. Or as the nurse said, she's tall and skinny. <laughs> Every girl's dream. <laughs> so does that does that help at all? Oh, yes, yes. That helps a lot. And I think, you know, part of it is just the fact that, you know, as a new parent, uh, you know, especially with, with young infants, you get a lot of advice, a lot of unsolicited advice. And a lot of times you know, a lot of the advice that you get is centered around how to make a parent's life easier. And and yeah. so to me, you know, you know, doing, you know, pe people do the cried out method, you know, in the first two weeks of, of bringing a baby home. And and that's, you know, obviously not something that's good for the baby. But uh, we're, we're kind of in that middle zone, you know, six months, like, you know, do we hold out for a couple more months? And, you know, is this should it should should we tough it out? Or are, are, are we not, you know, picking up our baby because it bothers us and not that it's, you know, a harmful thing to them. And, you know, you, you kind of get into all these this, this gray zone. But I, it, it, well, you you know you can't in a sorry you can't in a sustained way be getting up thirty times a night. Right, right. That 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 can't be good for them. You know, regardless. You know, no. was, uh, this is an extreme example, but I was reading in the Michael Jackson trial, 
And uh, <clears throat> I tell myself it's for the show. So <laughs> it's not celebrity gossip. It's research for true news, man. But, um, uh, you know, he, he was going to die because he wasn't getting any REM sleep. Like he had these, I don't know, god-awful horse tranquilizers or something that he, apparently this is all what is said in the trial. I have no idea what's true or not. But the doctor was saying, like, he was just going to die because without REM sleep, you just die. So, again, like, I'm not saying this is your situation or anything like that, but um, it doesn't, you know, that that's not good for your health to be getting up 31 times a night. I mean, that's how they break political prisoners is they continually interrupt their sleep. I mean, that's that's not great. Now, of course, if your kid's sick, you know, then that's a sort of manageable short period of time. Like if Izzy gets a cold or whatever, then she, a couple of nights she'll be waking up a lot, upset and sneezing and nose blocked and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we'll we'll go and get her at that point because that's sort of a short manageable time. But if the trend is that it's either staying the same or getting worse, uh, then um, I think that uh, um, the, the whole family needs to get uh, needs to get some sleep. And if the kids are unable, and again, I don't know what the right age to do it at is. I have no idea of the expertise. You can sort of read up more on that. But I do think that um, uh, you need to protect your children's developing brain and you know, they need that REM sleep. They need that solid sleep. Uh, I hugely sympathize. This is not a decision that any parent uh, wants to be faced with. I mean, we all want our kids. We don't, you know, first couple of months, absolutely, you know, wake up and, you know, we, we then want them to sort of get the hang of, of sleeping and so on. But um, if they're not, uh, then I, you know, I, I certainly feel that it was a regrettable necessity uh, for us. And it has worked out in a very positive way. Uh, my daughter now can sleep you know, 10, 12 hours uh, at a stretch. Uh, and uh, uh, that, of course, is is great. Um, you know, I mean, the other thing, and th this sort of happens for parents as well, you know, the, the, the question sort of becomes, at what point is the family too focused on the kids? In other words, do you and your wife have any kind of relationship outside of taking care of the babies? And... That, of course, is one of the great challenges of becoming a parent is the degree to which your entire focus just becomes reoriented around these black holes of need and resource requirements called babies. And it is important that you and your wife have some kind of relationship. And if all you are is exhausted because of the kids and you've got twins and like that's understandable and, and so on. But I don't think it's particularly healthy for the children as a whole as they develop if all they see are the parents facing the children and never the parents facing each other. So, you know, certainly my wife and I have been quite um, quite strong in, you know, reminding Izzy that there's times where we need adult time to chat. Like, because she needs also to learn about relationships, not just from people relating to her, but watching adults relate to each other. Uh, so I would also recommend that you remember that the reason that the kids are there is because of your relationship with your wife and that relationship it needs to be maintained and needs to be sustained uh, because the great temptation is to fall into just taking care of the kids or talking about the kids or, you know, and having, having that, that's it. Right. And I, I, you know, I would really recommend the sleep thing has to do with that as well. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted Isabella to be able to go to sleep is that I wanted to be able to have a conversation with my wife that lasted more than eight minutes before she had to go and, or I had to go and take care of Izzy. And it's okay to be selfish about your relationship with your wife because that is the foundation of why there are kids there to begin with, if that makes any sense. Oh yes. Oh yeah. 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 The, like this is great. And and just one little quick question. I know you were uh, you're writing a, a new book on parenting. Any idea when you're going to be done with that, or is that going to be kind of a project? You know, over over a period of years. 
No, not years. In fact, uh, I've got the first chapter or two done, and I'm going to start releasing that to donators to get feedback. Because there are lots of other parents out there. I, I, you know, scarcely claim to have any monopoly. I've got some theories and put some thought in it, and I've got some experience. But, you know, there are other parents out there who have experience with sibling issues that, because we have an only child, I can't, other than through my own childhood, I can't really speak much to. So uh, I'm going to release that through to the donators uh, who are interested to get uh, to get feedback. But uh, I'm going to try and get that done over the next week or so. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, and congratulations. Uh, I know that it's a hell of a challenge. Like, I can't, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. But, um, boy, talk about getting it all done at once. Um, <laughs> at least that's you. I don't know if you're going to have more kids or whatever, but um, congratulations on, on that. Uh, my very best to you both. And, you know, I would, I would certainly make a very strong case that if you listen to this show, uh, your kids are incredibly lucky to have you as parents. And so... You know, good choice for them on when to release from the stork's legs over the chimney of your house. Good job. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Take care, man. Best of luck. All right, Ben, you're the next caller today. Go ahead. Morning, Steph. Good morning. So I came across a subject that I believe to be true, but conflicts with something that you've said in a previous podcast. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> Next, I'm sorry, we have all the time we have for you today. But go ahead. So, so I'm, I've been listening in order, and I, so I'm up into the 700s. And uh, so 707 said, speculators are good. And actually, as you described, uh, you described a scenario, and I actually believe that, that that's true, um, that that is described uh, basically uh Speculators accumulate goods when they're cheap and they uh, make them available when the supply is scarce. So they, they even out supply and even out price. And I, and I agree with that. So I asked, uh, asked Michael if the subject had, had come up in the 2000 cents podcast. And, and he said, he said the subject has not yet uh, been beaten to death. So I figured I'd, I'd give that a shot. So I guess I should probably start off by saying that I, I'm I'm not a professional. I, I'm familiar with stocks, and I've um, I bought one of those home study courses on commodities, and and it got as far as doing some paper trades and and lost money on paper every single time. So I've I've not actually traded in commodities, but commodities is this parallel that uh, that I wanted to talk about. So the difference, um, oil is the most. Uh, uh, extreme example, so so I'll I'll use that. But the difference, the way that uh, speculation works now, is instead of um, accumulating the the goods when the price is low and then making them available when the price is high, is that speculators today they don't they don't take delivery. There is no storage. There is no um, you know accumulating when it's low and making it available when it's high. In uh, in 1983, the New York Mercantile Exchange added the commodities, and um, prior to that, oil traded in a in a tight band, like 10 to 20 dollars for like ever. The only exceptions were when there was a true world shortage, like a war or something like that. So, even today, speculators do provide value in creating liquidity for the market. So. The, the oil producers, uh, whenever they want to sell, there's always a buyer. And the, the, uh, the refineries, whenever they want to, 
to buy a contract, there's someone willing to sell it to them. So they do add uh, the liquidity to the market, which has some value. But now, uh, can I just ask you to, and I appreciate the background, but if I could ask you to get to the part where I'm wrong, that's uh, always the juiciest part for me. Right. <laughs> so go ahead. Okay, the part, the, the point that is that I have the problem with is that speculation is bad in this scenario because speculators now control 70% of the market. So it's broken the market. There is no tie between, um, between the availability of the good and the price. So we're well. Wait a sec. Sorry, sorry. You're saying speculators control seventy percent of the market, and they've broken the market. But why are speculators not part of the market? Like you see, you, you sort of sliced the market into speculators and non-speculators, and you said, well, speculators aren't part of the market, but, but they're buying and selling based upon anticipation of, of price and availability. I'm not sure why they wouldn't be part of the market. They well, okay. So well, the commodity though has changed from actual oil to contracts, and so the shortage, uh, uh, the contracts. Do uh, there are shortages of contracts? For example, when a news item comes out that uh, you know, war in the Middle East or whatever, um, then the price shoots way up, and the, everybody knows the price shoots way up because speculators now are seventy percent of the market. So uh, all the speculators know that that the other speculators buy on news, and so any even rumor of news can shoot the price way up. While while since I think the latest statistics show that actual oil, the demand is just kind of now catching up with where we were in 07. And supply is, there's every every out of the ground oil tank is full. The Saudis stopped producing because there's no one to take the oil. Um, so there's not only is all the uh, the supply maxed out, but there's excess capacity. So normally... Oh, wait, sorry. Are you saying that the price doesn't actually reflect market conditions because of speculation that's that's the part that is broken yes the way that speculation well but sorry again i'm again i i don't claim any economic expertise but price is perception isn't it i mean you say that there's some price that should be different from what people are willing to pay for something but i don't think there is such a thing as price that's different from what billing we people are willing uh, prices is something that is determined in the moment of transaction and there's no platonic ideal price that should be higher or lower i mean it's, it's simply what people are willing to pay for something, right? So there's this, one of these original Apples went on sale and was like $225,000. Somebody paid for one of the original Apple computers. And to my mind, that's like, <laughs> it's insane. I mean, are you kidding me? Quarter million dollars almost for some crappy old two-bit computer? Or it's like, I was talking to a friend of mine who um, made thousands and thousands of dollars on signed baseball cards. Now, dear God in heaven, if there's not something that's useless on this planet, it's signed baseball cards. I mean, what a load of nonsense. I mean, it, it's a picture with some ink on it. I mean, what the hell value does that have to anyone? But the reality, of course, is it has huge value to people, and they're willing to pay thousands of dollars for a particularly for t particular signed baseball cards. Now, you can say, well, that's not curing cancer. That's not feeding the hungry. That's not building houses for the for the rain upon. I mean, it's just a stupid baseball card. And then I think, wait a minute. What if there was a Freddie Mercury baseball card that was uh, ah. <laughs> You know, first of all, he'd look great in those in those pants, and secondly, you know, a signed picture of Freddie Mercury. I think that'd be pretty cool. Um, so, anyway, I mean, what I'm pointing out is, I don't I don't know that there's price that exists. I don't think there is a price that exists outside of what people are willing to pay for stuff. Well, I, I think I think the problem comes from government regulations that force all these transactions through these markets. 
So the point that I think the, the single point that is relevant is that so it, when prices shoot way up, that's a signal to consumers to cut consumption as far as you can till, till supply increases, right? So then, then this huge price encourages more production. So then you get the supply up and then the price comes back down. That hasn't happened. So we've got the supply is maxed out. The demand is is zero and the price is still at, at record highs. The prices right now. Well, the, sorry, but then if, if, it's, if sorry to interrupt, but if it's yeah. government regulations that you have a problem with, which I would certainly agree with, yeah. then your issue is not with speculation. Your issue is re it's with regulation, right? It, effectively, but it shows up. And so, so right now the speculators really aren't even the bad guys because they it's not like they're making a ton of money. And this is, I think, what's confusing for a lot of people is because the speculators will say, well, look, for every winner, there's a loser. And that's true. Speculators don't care where the price is at. They just want it to move and they want to be on the right side of that move. The thing is, the way that the regulation has forced everybody into this market, people are paying, people have to actually, the consumers, the refineries have to pay this market price that isn't really for the oil, it's for these contracts. It's like somebody's playing a game in the other room when you're at an auction and you want to buy some good, and they come out and say, oh, well, no, our card game resulted in this number, so that's what you have to pay. Right, and, and so, again, I would focus on not the people who are profiting from a legal environment but from the legal environment itself <laughs> and the reason i say that is that that you you simply you know somebody who's a speculator i mean at least they're speculating with their own money with their own reputation you know with, based upon their own pay uh, the regulators of course i mean regulation is one of these things that is is so crippling to the economy it's such a hidden tax right i mean i was reading this report the other day that said if regulations had remained the same from 1948, I think it was, to the present, then America's GDP would not be 15 trillion and change, but rather 53 trillion dollars and change. <laughs> now, imagine, imagine what people could do with, you know, four, four or so times the amount of money that they had, right? So instead of the average income being whatever it is, 30K, right? Imagine if it was over $100,000 a year of after-tax income that, that people would have. I mean, there'd be no involuntary poverty. There'd be enough money for people to pay for whatever schooling they wanted for their kids. We'd have enough money as a society to put the right kind of pollution controls in uh, because I'm sure that's what people would want. Uh, I mean, it, it, almost all social problems would be would be solved. There would be enough money for one person to work, the other person to stay home with kids, which would be much to the betterment of society. And uh, the, the, and that's that's just regulations let alone all the other crap the government has piled on to kill the economy. Um, I mean, so having, you know, three, four, five times the amount of money uh, in your pocket uh, with nothing else changing other than, you know, it wasn't like the government didn't regulate any parts of the economy in 1948. If it had just stayed at that level, which has killed two to three percentage points of growth every year, I mean, people would be, they'd be so rich they'd felt they'd won the lottery. You know, like, so if, if you're getting four times the amount of income, um, then basically, you know, from the from the average, you're looking at gaining sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year. Now, if you're looking at gaining sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year, and you're looking, and like if you if you were to get that money, then that would require that you invest, you know, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars at a couple of percentage points of of return. So it's like everyone just got three quarters of a million dollars and then got some money off of that. Probably more, actually, probably closer to a million, one point two million, because you know, ten percent is pretty. It's pretty high to get a consistent return on investment. So it'd be like everyone won over a million dollars 
if there just had been less regulation? And what would that do to our society? What would that – well, I mean, then you'd say, well, let's privatize this. So you'd say, well, fine, privatize it because people can afford it because they've got so much damn money. Uh, you know, wealth is what breeds quality and gives people at least – makes voluntarism look, look more accessible to people. There'd be so much money uh, in the economy that uh, social problems would be vastly diminished. Uh, to the point where we could continue to shrink government and get even more money. So anyway, I just want to point that out. Uh, you can focus on the speculators all you want, but to me that's like saying, well, you know, those those rat bastard capitalists who take government contracts. Well, unfortunately, uh, if you're the CEO of a company, you have a legal obligation to your shareholders to make sound business decisions to maximize your income. Uh, you do not have the legal obligation to take a stand based on voluntarism and undermine or destroy the value of the company by refusing to take government contracts. Uh, that's actually a breach of your fiduciary responsibility to your employees, to your shareholders, to the company as a whole. So you can get mad at the military-industrial complex, but really it's just the power of the state that you should, I think, really be focusing on to make sure that you don't muddy the issues. Um, uh, you know, you know, some guy strangles a cat. There's no point getting angry at the flies eating the cat. I mean, that's what the flies do. But uh, I think focusing on the guy who strangles the cat is the important thing. Well, it, yeah, and again, it's like I said, speculators aren't necessarily the bad guys. It's just the way that it is has been, excuse me, has been set up that it is the excess speculation. Oddly enough, it was even the Saudis when they asked why is the price so high. That was their answer, which it seemed kind of funny that they actually admitted to it because most of the time the speculators they won't tell you speculation is prone because they're making money off of it. But if you, I, I'm, I'm confident that if the speculation were reduced to just, you know, speculators could, I don't know, say, just be part of a, an actual delivery, uh, you know, with either a refinery or a, or a producer, that the price would drop by like 75%. So, yeah, it is, it is the state regulation. It's not specifically, I don't think speculators are bad guys. I don't have a problem with speculation. I speculate myself. But, um, but yeah, it is. It is a real problem. In in the things, particularly with oil, uh, it impacts the entire economy. And the uh, the Arab Spring. I mean, that was all about the other uh, other commodity prices, uh, foodstuffs. Yeah, wheat and so on. Yeah, yeah so, people couldn't eat. Yeah, well, when your when your food when your your budget for food is like seventy five percent of your income because you're going to buy a bag of grain for the month, and that that doubles in price. Now there's there, you can't there's not enough money even if you spend all of it on food so the people were just starving, and so I mean this this the excess uh, speculation just the way the markets are set up really messes things up and that was that was my point. Yeah no I mean I, it's it's so weird the degree to which we live in this artificial Franken world and people they don't they don't see it they don't understand it I mean you know why do you have two parties in America well. I mean, the Democrats, I mean, talk about the Republican issues, but just talk about the Democrats for a moment. I mean, why why is there a Democratic Party? Well, for two fundamental reasons, uh, sympathy from the media and donations from unions. I mean, that's that's without that, there's no Democrat Party fundamentally, right. because there's been some pretty credible estimates that sympathy from the media adds about 10 percentage points to the Democrats in terms of election results, which makes them a credible party because it's very rare that, uh, particularly at the national level in, in the U.S., that an election has a greater than 10-point spread in, in winning and losing. So uh, sympathy from the media adds about 10 percentage points to the election results for Democrats. And, of course, hundreds of millions of dollars get funneled to the Democrats from public sector and private sector unions, but in particular public sector unions. 
Now, the sympathy from the media is um, all the result of statism. And, of course, you know, the, the laws that create and, and sustain the forced funneling of union money from union members to political parties, you know, violating, of course, their uh, right of freedom of association. Forced association is a violation of freedom of association in the same way that rape is a violation of sexuality. <laughs> and is, I mean, the, so the, the, the Democrat Party is, is it, it's only propped up by the media and and forced status laws. So you can get mad at that and say, well, you know, but, but, you know, if people are shoveling hundreds of millions of dollars in profit, promising you positive media coverage, I mean, who the hell wouldn't take advantage of that, you know, particularly the general soulless population? So you get mad at, oh, the Democrats, they should, you know, it's like, well, but it's just, it's just an artificial environment that is created and sustained by the power of the state. And so much of that is, is the case. And, um, uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, the, the price of everything, the quality of your hotel room, the, the 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 degree to which your toilet flushes, the degree to which your clothes get clean, as Jeffrey Tucker's pointed out, so much of our life is conditioned by the power of the state. We li- we really live in the belly of a dragon and think that uh, that's the world. Well, thank you very much. It's good good points to bring up, and um, I'm not sure whether I ended up being right or wrong, but I certainly did filibuster my way to the next call, and I consider that. <laughs> to be a massive victory. <laughs> no, thank you very much for, for bringing it up. And uh, Mike, who's up next? All right, Don, you're up next. Hello, Stefan. Can you hear me okay? I can. Go ahead. Basically, the reason that I wanted to talk to you was um, I've been having a lot of problems with um, like the implications of the things that I'm learning. Um, I was raised mm. Catholic. Uh, I never really bought into any of it. you know. But my mom took me to church every week and everything. Then... I had problems with uh, drugs and alcohol uh, in my teenage years, and I got exposed to recovery, to AA, and um, that's where I found the the higher power concept, and that I could do, which was fine, and it was very helpful to me, I suppose. But um, when I started listening to your podcasts, and uh, especially when I started reading your books, which are amazing... um, Oh, and I should also say that uh, after the accepting the agnostic sort of viewpoint, then I met a, a woman that came from a very strong Christian family. I ended up marrying her and uh, a fundament- fundamentalist Christian family. And I really started to buy into that. Um, you know, I listened to some arguments and it started to sort of make sense to me. And I think that on top of that, it was probably you know, I sort of, this desire to sort of conform and be accepted. And I thought, I, I always, my whole life have thought, you know, religion, I've, I've associated religion with, with morality. And, but then I started hearing some of the things you were saying. And um, I was just able to see how there, there is no objective morality from, from like the Bible. It's all, it's all very convoluted and, and confusing. And, um, and then when I was listening to, um, uh, against the gods, um, cause it, cause even at this point, as soon as I, and I started reading the Bible too, and that was very troubling cause I started reading all of the, the terrible things in the Bible, but, um, then in against the gods, you know, I still had, I still had this higher power view, which was, you know, um, which worked for me or whatever, but then your arguments in there, like, I can't. I want so badly to to refute the arguments that you're making, but I can't. And I don't want to I don't even want to fight it anymore. But the point is is I've 
I've still, I've been struggling. The reason I emailed the show is I've been struggling with, you know, recovery from uh, alcoholism and addiction. And the only thing that's ever, I've ever really had any success with is AA. And it's, you know, it's very spiritual program. They talk about God. They, they say the, the Our Father at the end of every meeting, you know, everybody, you know, holds hands and says the Our Father together, the serenity prayer in the beginning of every meeting. Um, you know, we talk about prayer and, uh, and even though it's not talking about like the Christian God or whatever, it's, you know, it's talking about higher power. It just, it started making me feel uncomfortable at meetings. Um, and, you know, I've only, this time around, I've only been sober for a little over three months. But, um, so now I'm, I'm just kind of in between a rock and a hard place because I can't, like, I, I feel like. I mean, it's almost like right out of the matrix where like I took the red pill and I can't go back. And it's, it's actually, it's sort of ironic because in, you know, in the program, you kind of learn about how once you become an alcoholic, it's like turning a, a, a cucumber into a pickle and you can never go back. And that's kind of how I feel. So now I'm like, well, shit, you know, like, what am I supposed to do now? And I'm so afraid because all of the things that I'm doing as far as I mean, so many of the things you've said have just totally, they've challenged everything I've ever believed about anything. And I'm so grateful to have heard and to continue to be exposed to the the messages that you're, you're sending out. Um, but now I'm like, none of that is, is really going to mean anything if I don't stay sober either, because it's so, it compromises my life in so many ways. And so that's where, I don't know, I just, uh, I wanted to like toss it out there and see if there's, you know... I know you had mentioned a, a, a book uh, that I'm going to read uh, called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which sounds good. And, and Michael had uh, suggested that I, I look at the podcast that you had with uh, Dr. I think Mate. Yeah, Gabor Mate. Yeah, yeah, which I did, which I found very helpful. Um, but I'm just I'm having a hard time right now with this. I get it. No, I really do. And And first of all, I mean, congratulations on the sobriety you know good 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 for you and that's that's hard that's hard so you know good for you i want to sort of really f start off with that secondly good god what's wrong with surrendering to a higher power i mean i do it every day i mean surrendering to a higher power is seems to me exactly the right thing to do now i happen to call mine philosophy uh, reason and evidence but i certainly surrender to a higher power okay and uh, there's nothing to me that's I mean, otherwise you end up with the narcissism of greed, satiation in the moment, right? Which is kind of okay. addiction, right? <laughs> Which sure. is not where you want to be. So I think that surrendering to a higher power is is uh, is a great thing to do. Now, I mean, you know, I know that they don't have specifically Christian references in that, but they talk about surrendering to a higher power. I think that, as Ayn Rand has pointed out, that serenity prayer, you know, God grant me the... <clears throat> The serenity to accept the things I can't change and the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference, as Ayn Rand pointed out, other than the God grant me, I mean, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. There are some things I can't change. I can't change history. I can't change my history. I can't change the choices that I or other people have made in the past, right? I can't change gravity. Uh, I can't reform human nature as it currently stands. I can't end war by snapping my fingers and so on. Yeah, so there's lots of things that I can't change. I can control my choices and my actions to a large degree. Although even that is, tr is, is tricky because there are things that you know and the things that you don't know. 
right? I mean, I'm going to continue to accumulate knowledge as I go forward in time. And, you know, I guarantee you that if I had the knowledge available to me now that I'm going to have in 10 years, I would make different choices now. Okay. Just as, you know, if I could go back 10 years and talk to myself, I would suggest making different choices than those I made along the road, some of them. So I can control, I, can, I mean, I can't even control the wisdom of my decisions. What I can do is I can continue to accept, absorb, and pursue better evidence, better arguments, better philosophy, and that will work to improve the decisions that I make over time. So, you know, we have a pretty small window of the things that we can control. And um, uh, so I, you know, I think all of that stuff is, is great. Now, as far as the morality thing goes, well, you know, just to jump back to the Zimmerman Martin thing for a sec, you know, there's lots of, I mean, the black community is, is a very religious community. It's a very religious community. And of course, a very Christian community and a significant amount of fundamentalist Christians uh, in the black community, right? Now, in the past, during these times of crisis, I would be waiting with bated breath for this highly Christian community, or at least for the leaders in this highly Christian community, to remember the words of Jesus Christ and to say, whoa, 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 what are we sending death threats to Zimmerman for? What are we, what are we attacking Zimmerman for? What are we asking the government to continue to attack Zimmerman for? Remember what Jesus said was Jesus said to love your enemies. Let's show George Zimmerman the kind of love that Jesus commands of us and stop trying to seek vengeance. Uh, you know, sure. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not the people. And Jesus said to love your enemies. And since we are Christians, uh, I'm just waiting for that too. And I used to wait for that. I don't wait for that stuff. I mean, it's not going to happen, right? So even if, you know, even if religion could make people do things, it would be suspect. Because, of course, we can't have a morality based upon authority. I mean, that's the exact opposite of what morality is. Morality has to, has to have something to do with universal principles independent of authority, just like the scientific method, just like mathematics, right? There's no, <laughs> there's no math council that determines what's good and bad mathematics. And fundamentally, there's no science council that determines what is good or bad science. It's a set of methodologies that everyone can pursue, and you can get published and change the world if, like Albert Einstein, you happen to work as a patent clerk and not even be a scientist. In the same way that you can revolutionize the literary world by writing a great book without ever having attended a creative writing class in your life. So there's no council of philosophy or math or science or anything like that. It's just methodology that's common to all. That has to be the way that morality is going to work. I mean, it's the way medicine works. There's no, I mean, yeah, because FDA and stuff, but I mean, the ideal form of medicine is, you know, double blind experiments and tests and all that kind of stuff. And to, to separate coincidence and spontaneous remission from genuine cures and so on. Um, the most, and, and it's the way the free market works, right? It's property rights and, and trade and so on, but no central planning, at least not ideally. So all, all the things that work in society work when there's a commonly accepted methodology, but no central authority. I mean, that's, that's the stuff that just works best in the world. And morality has to be that. I mean, it, it simply cannot be 
that it is commanded from on high and interpreted by mere mortals. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster, well, that right and wrong is something that somebody tells you about as an absolute and cannot prove. I mean, that's just fundamentally, it's an argument from authority. Well, God said it, or the Pope said it. I mean, this doesn't even remotely work logically. So morality can't be that way. Um, and it doesn't work in practice. You know, I, I've not seen a single prominent Christian leader say, wait, Jesus would command us to love George Zimmerman. So, you know, let's send him flowers. Let's gently remonstrate with him. Let's show him the errors of his ways in, in loving format. No, they're all howling for his blood and trying to sick the DOJ on him and stuff like that. I mean, so uh, even, even if it did work, it would be problematic and irrational and an argument from authority. But it doesn't even work. Right? As I've always argued, religion takes the prejudices of the mob and turns them into irrational absolutes, which is incredibly dangerous. It's like reinforcing psychosis. It's incredibly dangerous. And this has been the continual pattern throughout history. So I certainly understand the challenges that you're facing, and I certainly don't want to do anything that's going to end up with you getting back into uh, any kind of addiction. And I do understand that it's a huge challenge. But I think this there's great peace in surrendering one's mere ego to higher principles. This is why if people disprove what I'm saying, great. I'm only invested in the methodology. I'm not invested in the conclusions. And so if there's a better method, if somebody, you know, disproves or there's evidence against or whatever, great. You know, I'll do a whole show reading out stuff that's corrections to me. Fantastic. Good job. And Like I, I did a show the other day where I mentioned something about somebody dying in the protest against Governor Walker. Now, a bunch of people told me that this wasn't the case. Nobody did die. I haven't verified it. But of course, if nobody did die, then I'm sorry. I read something that somebody did. And so it's my mistake. If, if it's not true, it's no skin off my nose. And I'm sorry to have said something that was false if it turns out to be false. But not wed to, not wed to a conclusion. And there's great, there's great peace in surrendering to principles. Because it takes the angry ego out of it. You know, you can see I've been watching some of the debates, the sniper fire back and forth under the uh, Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman video that I put out a couple of days ago. And I mean, you can see this, just people invested in the conclusion, adapting the facts, quote facts, to suit what they want. The emotional escalation, the bullying, the violence, the verbal abuse that spews back and forth. And boy, is it ever a nice reminder of how nice my listeners generally are when it comes to their debates. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not often firing off the megaton wattage of the see you next Tuesday words at each other and so on. So uh, it is really nice uh, to, to see that. But you can see this is the, the challenge when people have these ego-driven, conclusion-based, prejudicial approaches to things and really have trouble trying to process any kind of opposing perspective without blowing up. I mean, this is, this is vanity. This is immaturity. And this is the existential panic of people who are wedded to conclusions and feel, um, as soon as you align yourself with conclusions rather than a methodology, then you face emotional annihilation panic when your conclusions are disproven because you've wedded yourself into a particular conclusion rather than you. You can't disprove the methodology of reason and evidence. I mean, you can't because the only way you disprove it is using reason and evidence. It's as you be <laughs> But you can disprove certain conclusions. 
And so if you're wedded to conclusions and the conclusions are disproven, what happens to your personality? Well, it faces annihilation panic, which is why people get so aggressive, why people get so crazy hostile. Because they're wed to conclusions, not a methodology. You know, fuck the conclusions. Who gives a shit? The methodology is the only thing that counts. The methodology is the only thing that matters. And so, you know, as far as that goes, I think that there's a fair amount of, of value in the stuff that comes out of the uh, um, the self-help movement as far as addiction goes. Does that, does that sort of make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It, it, that's That's all very helpful. One sort of derivative question I have then based on that is like, even if we were to accept the premise that um, morality could be like authoritative, like you could just, someone would know what morality was and they would just tell you. Um, I guess, because see, I listen to, um, and I, I really appreciate you putting the, the Lloyd DeMoss book that you have on your website, um, the, the history of, or the origin. Oh, it's the origins of war in child abuse. Yes. This is a very important book. This. Yes. Um, yes, it is. And so my question about that was just because I don't really understand all the time frames. I, I'm trying to evaluate all this stuff, and I'm not that smart, but I'm, I'm really – it's very important to me. Hey, you said derivative question. That's – you know, that puts you above nine, nine, 19 out of 20 people in the population. <laughs> oh, but go ahead. Um, so first of all, the stuff in this book is very, very troubling, and it starts from – you know, I guess it started talking about these tribal cultures and, you know, all of these uh, behaviors that they had. And the thing that really struck me was when we got into the, the Nazis, the Nazis and yeah. um, the way that um, how clear it is. It's just unmistakable that the way that they were raised, that they ultimately acted out those those um, experiences. I mean, it was down to like the words, like the words that they would use to describe what they were doing in the world just was correlated almost directly to these um, child rearing practices. And so yeah. what I'm wondering is where do biblical times fit into this? Like what, um, do we know what the, I, I know that the, for instance, um, the, the Bible mentions, mentions uh, swaddling uh, and even Jesus was swaddled, right? So yeah. was this, I mean, we've we've found out that swaddling is 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 abusive, correct? Yeah, and it's 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 very destructive. So, I guess what I'm wondering. Yeah, is, swaddling is is the practice of wrapping babies up so tightly that they can't move. Yes, that they're totally. And in Germany, they would actually hang them on hooks, and there would be there would be lice in the swaddling bandages, and thus um, the babies in early childhood experiences of lice crawling through their own bodies uh, would be horrendous, as you can imagine. And then, when, of course, when you refer to the Jews as lice, that has very powerful. You know, like like in the um, in the Rwanda the massacres when they referred to the opposing as cockroaches. Well, the cockroaches in the tropics are horrendous, and you know, crawl over the children and crawl in their ears. And so, you, right, the the first the, the precursor to violence is always language. Right, Lang language is what sets the stage for violence. Without the dehumanization of language, uh, the the dehumanizing capacity of language is very hard to to enact violence. Um, there's always a the language mythology? that comes first, right? I mean, so so when Trayvon Martin's Gentile, I think her name is, <laughs> talk about a homonym that doesn't quite fit, but when the uh, when his, his friend was talking to him on the phone and said, you know, the, you know that, that guy who's following you, that, you know, he could be a rapist who just wants to prey on, 
um, black men or whatever, right? She's sort of whispering into his ear about, you know, then, then of course, becomes a gay bashing crime if, if this was a motivation for him. But, you know, when he calls this guy a creepy ass cracker, I mean, that's language that dehumanizes somebody else, right? And, and when he calls himself no limit nigger or nigga, I guess, N-A-G-G-A, mm-hmm. then he's dehumanizing himself. Uh, the, the, the violence must always be preceded by dehumanizing language. It's, it's almost impossible to be violent towards someone without, in your own mind, dehumanizing them through uh, through language. And I think that's uh, I, I think that's essential to to what it is that we were talking about. But so sorry, you were talking about the the biblical stuff. Yeah, where yeah. Some well, of the... no, and actually what you said was also – I think that's one of the most important things that I've learned from you is that we very much as a culture – I guess every culture, I don't know. We hide behind our language. We call things different things. You know, it's – if I murder someone, that's wrong. But if I put on a costume and, you know, President Obama tells me to kill someone, then it's virtuous. It's good, and I will be applauded. And when I come home, you know, I'll, uh, what I've done will be celebrated. Um and th- this is just so important. Um, but but just to continue what I was, my, my question was also the things from that book, um, some of the things, you know, about like pedophilia and, um, you know, these like terrible, th- this, this, uh, this idea that uh, uh, you can cure venereal disease by having sex with a child. Um, was this stuff going on around these times? Because the conclusion that I um, have tentatively drawn is that the people that uh, this was a very primitive people and they were all very they were likely very sick is that fair or is that uh supported by what we know well i don't know the details uh, I, I certainly can't claim to be an expert on the details of child raising practices in the middle east sort of 2000 years ago but what i can say is this is that we consider the writers of the bible to be foundational to the Judeo-Christian culture and to do Judeo-Christian ethics. Okay, so we, we carry this book forward in time, and it's the foundation of our moral center for worldview and our culture and so on. It's okay, well. So let's imagine that the people who wrote the Bible are transported forward in time, I guess a little under 2,000 years. I think the Bible was sort of collated 100 and 200 years after the death of Jesus, if Jesus was born and lived. I don't know. Probably did. Who knows, right? Well, let's say that uh, somebody comes forward and they openly preach and believe and say that, you know, they, they, they believe that a friend of theirs came back from the dead, walked on water, turned water into wine and, you know, multiplied loaves and fishes and uh, could speak with the dead and could, he- could heal people with a touch and, and so on and so on and so on, right? Well, this person would be institutionalized as a psychotic, as delusional. And, and they would be possibly restrained and certainly drugged with antipsychotics. Not that I'm a big fan of antipsychotics, but, you know, I mean, this is, this is how they would be treated. Well, this probably does happen, no? I mean, I imagine some... Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, you know, every second person is either Jesus or Napoleon. I don't know if Napoleon <laughs> is still so common, but... Right, so... And if they said, well, I did bad things because an invisible ghost who hates me was whispering to me all night. And if they said that they were able to be in direct contact with omniscient consciousness that would tell them exactly what was true and false and, and so on. And if they, you know, like if, if, if 
the fundamental tenets that the people believed who wrote the Bible were espoused in the modern world as genuine facts, um, then this person would be would be mentally ill. So the foundation of Judeo-Christian culture and and morals and worldview and so on and laws is mental illness, it's craziness. And the only reason that Christians aren't considered crazy is that they're not Christians. Right? So, I mean, in the Bible, it commands Christians to, to put unbelievers and homosexuals and sorcerers and witches and uh, to death. And so the only reason that Christians aren't in jail is that they reject that part of the Bible. And, and it's tragically only quite recent that they rejected that part of the Bible. In fact, I would say that monasteries were probably came into being because people wanted to hide from homophobic, murderous Christians. So they'd all pretend to be celibate when they actually would. <laughs> it just it was the gay bar of the Middle Ages, my guess. But it's only the degree to which they reject the ethics portrayed in the Bible. Right? Against slavery? Okay, well, that's because you're against the Bible. The Bible explicitly condones slavery, selling daughters into sexual slavery and you know, some some kids who made fun of a guy who was bald, well, you know, God sent a bear to kill them. I mean, this is all insane shit. You know, like if you said, if you said, well, you know, my, my kids are making fun of my bald head, so I'm going to take them to the zoo and drop them into the bear cage, you'd be fucking nuts. <laughs> right, and rub them in marinade and drop them into a bear cage right before feeding time because they made fun of my bald head. I mean, you would be insane your kids would be taken away and you'd be either locked in a jail or you'd be institutionalized. And I mean, you could go on all day. It's sort of, it's, it's a shooting fish in a barrel to find crazy stuff in the Bible. In the Bible, so it doesn't really matter, right? But, but the degree to which we say the Bible is the foundation of our culture is the degree to which we say people who would be institutionalized and drugged as being psychotic uh, are the ones who define our culture. Well, if you're willing to say that, uh, with a straight face and be comfortable with it, then, you know, maybe there's room in the next cell. I don't know. <laughs> well, it seems, <laughs> but, that, it seems that, that they're, sorry to interrupt. It seems that um, their defense to that is that Jesus came along and, um, you know, made all of that irrelevant or it no longer applies or, I don't see that though. I see, I've even seen. Well, it's not what Jesus said. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, Jesus explicitly said, well, f first and foremost, if Jesus was the son of God, and God is, is like the, the, the Christian deity or the Jewish deity, or I guess in the Old Testament, the deity of the three major religions founded on, on this stuff. Well, if, if that's your God, then your, your God is, is crazy and evil. Right? So, so, so if, if Jesus is the son of God and, and God sent Jesus to save mankind, then you're taking the word of a crazy evil deity that what he's doing now is good. So, right. so first of all, it doesn't solve the problem. I mean, you can only make, if the New Testament contradicts the Old Testament, then Jesus is explicitly calling the deity evil. But the deity is the only thing that legitimizes Jesus as a divine figure. So you can't call, you can't call the deity evil if, the, if that deity legitimizes you as a divine figure, because then you're just the product of evil. So that's sort of the first, even if, right, even if Jesus did contradict everything in the Old Testament, but it's not the case. Jesus explicitly said, Everything in the Old Testament stands. Everything in the Old Testament stands. I've not come to contradict anything in the Old Testament. So he explicitly approves of all the rules, laws, and crazy shit that goes on in the Old Testament, according to the story.
And of course he has to. Of course he has to. So I don't, you know, this idea that Jesus came up, he was, you know, the kind of gentleman, gentlemanly uh, beta version, you know, it's out of alpha in the Old Testament, it's into beta, and we've made some significant improvements. Well, no, it was, to say the least, backwards compatible. <laughs> so, um, you know, Windows 8 doesn't, is not the opposite of DOS. You can run DOS in Windows 8. And it's the same thing with uh, with the Bible. I mean, it solved the problem. If Jesus contradicts significant portions of the Old Testament morally, then why did he say he was going to fulfill it all? And he basically is saying that that, Jesus, that God has, did a huge amount of evil. And I'm the son of God, and you got to worship God, and then, th you know, through me, and so on. I mean, that's, um, that's I mean, that's just, with without the weight of culture and history and cathedrals and stained glass and propaganda and songs, but this would be completely unbelievable. I mean, if I said, I have come here as the son of Hitler to redeem the Jews, although I approve of everything that Hitler did, people would say, are you nuts? And I said, well, no, 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 I think we should treat the Jews better, but I also approve of everything that Hitler and the Nazis did. You'd say, well, what are you talking about? I mean, it was a Holocaust, for God's sakes. How could you say we want to treat the Jews better and then also say that you approve of everything that Hitler did? And that you're the son of Hitler and that your only value to the world is being the son of Hitler. And Hitler and his ideology legitimizes everything you're saying now. I mean, if you put forward that argument, people would, they wouldn't even roll their eyes. Their jaws probably wouldn't even drop because they'd recognize somebody who's just crazy. But it takes a huge amount of culture to normalize crazy. And of course, that's its main focus. Yeah, I, I think that is just a fantastic analogy, and uh, you know I appreciate that. I wish it didn't even have to be said. It's one of these things that's so obvious, but of course, uh, the whole purpose of propaganda is to make the obvious seem obscure. But these people or don't offensive. seem to question it, you know. Like, and even if even if even if we accepted that, say Jesus came and he un, you know he made everything different, it was still the same deity. That did all of this wrong, and he's that you're supposed to worship. Yeah, and well, and you worship him because he's perfect, but he's yeah. perfect, but he gets angry and he murders, and uh, okay, well, well, this is a very helpful discussion for me. Good. Well, I, I appreciate that, and uh, you know, I, uh, I at, at the same level, you know, the people who abandon religion very often end up in a pretty terrible place. And certainly the purpose, I think, of, of part of what I'm doing here is to give people who abandon the craziness of religion a, a sane place to land where they can still have a surrender to a higher power. It's just called reason and evidence. It's called philosophy. You know, I mean, we want the guy who builds our house to surrender to the higher power called physics, right? And engineering and... <laughs> Like I want people okay, yeah. who build my planes to surrender to the higher power of wind speed and thrust and lift and weight and drag and all the stuff that Blue talks about in Rio, right? I, I want people to surrender to a higher power. You know, I, I want the guy who does surgery on me to surrender to the higher power called physiology. Yay! I don't want him to make it up as he goes along. I don't know. This kind of looks like a spleen to me. I guess I'll take it out. Wait, that's my left testicle. Stop. So, I, I you know, this... It is only the mad vanity of narcissism that doesn't want to surrender to a higher power. And uh, I, 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 I'm delighted to surrender to a higher power because, you know, it's, it's pretty important. 
Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, and best of luck. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much for everything. And um, uh, stay sober, man. Thank you. Good for you. Good for you. Good for you. All right. All right. Who we got next? All right, Davey, you're up next. Go ahead. Uh, hello. Can you hear me? Yes. D D Davey. Uh, it's Davi. Uh, like uh, like the Mojave Desert. Ah. Well. Hello. Sorry to wide up your name too much, but no, uh, go right. ahead, my friend. Um, so I'm working on a project and I wanted to kind of solicit your ethical expertise. Um, I was at Porkfest this year in New Hampshire and there was an agorist pitch contest and I won the contest, um, with the idea of, uh, sort of running Milgram style or Stanford prison experiment style psychological experiments, um, that reject the sort of state's ethical guidelines, but are based on a sort of uh, voluntarist or non-aggression principle sort of ethical guidelines. And so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what a sort of like legitimate non-aggression principle derived guidelines for experimentation would look like. And specifically, the thing that people are concerned about is trauma and whether or not causing someone to witness something traumatic constitutes aggression. Could you give me an example of what that would look like? What, what, what sort of uh, stuff? Uh, well, yeah, this is sort of one of the main or major major object objections to Milgram and the Stanford experiment is that those subjects, even though they signed consent forms, underwent very traumatic experiences. And that's why the ethical guidelines were changed. And that's sort of why they have not really been repeated and why studies into authority have been very um, sort of tame by comparison. But the the experiment that, that I proposed was on police brutality, and, and the question was whether or not putting someone in a position to witness an instance of police brutality was unethical. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, self-knowledge is, is important. You know, one of the great things that came out of the Milgram experiments I'm thinking more in particular the one where, you know, they, they, the guys in the white coat said, we're doing an experiment on learning. you got to shock this guy. Yeah. And two-thirds of people, I think it was, were willing to administer a fatal dose of electricity to someone just because that person told them to. Right. So those people underwent That's... a lot of psychological stress. Those subjects didn't just go yeah. willingly. They, they, sh they were shaking, and they were, but yep. they just physically couldn't refuse for some reason. Well, it's because how, it's how they're raised, right? Yeah, it's how they're um, raised. Yeah, it's how they're raised. You just defer to people in authority, and you don't question people in authority. And, uh, I mean, that's what the state wants, and it's what the teachers want, at least in the government system, right? So it's what the police want, just defer to people in authority. I mean, that's how I – mean, it's tough to do fascism if people are morally independent of authority, right? And, of course, there's a great relief in surrendering. For a lot of people, there's a great relief when you live in a corrupt society to surrender your authority your moral authority to other people in authority. Right. Because then you don't have to worry about whether you're doing the right or wrong thing. You only have to worry about whether you're escaping punishment or gaining gaining rewards. So, so it is interesting. So if, if I had the capacity to murder someone because someone in authority told me to, mm -hmm. I think that would be pretty important information for me to have. Is it traumatic? Hell yeah. Yeah. Is it important for me to know that about myself? I think it kind of is. That's interesting. So, so you're kind of doing them a favor. Well, you know, favor is a tough, uh, you know, is a tough word to use because it's such a difficult situation. 
I think if you sign if you sign a release, right, then there's no initiation of force or fraud. Right. Well, there's no force involved anyway. Like, no, there's no physical conflict. There's no physical. Well, there is some. Wait, sorry. There is. Sorry, just to. to, to I said fraud and uh, fraud somewhat glibly, but oh, there right. was some fraud involved in that. Yeah. There weren't actually electric shocks being generated. So can right? you there, even there conduct? Real. I mean, if you if there's no fraud involved, then I don't understand. There's. I'm not sure. Then you can't test. Right. You can't test because you change the results. So if you yes. tell them this yes. is. Yes. So people have is, to believe that it's yeah. actually occurring. So yeah, you can't tell them this is a fake police officer. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, with the with the um, the sort of hidden camera stuff, it only works if you show the people afterwards, right? So. Right. So it's it's tough. I think I think if somebody if somebody says like I I am willing to submit to an open ended psychological experiment, then I think that's not the initiation of force. And because you're saying it's open-ended, like we're not going to tell you ahead of time what the psychological experiment is about. Right. Or the parameters. Like if they knowingly submit to that open-ended thing, then I don't see that force or fraud is involved, in which case it's a voluntary contract and so on. Now, if it's upsetting to find out that you're capable of murder if someone tells you to, that is traumatic. But I, you know, I'd sort of argue that it's better to find that out in a lab than a concentration camp. Yeah. So but it's better to find that out in simulated yeah. circumstances than you actually do kill someone. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's better to have a dry run where nobody's actually hurt and you find that out about yourself. So how much and do you society think it finds changes? that out about itself as a whole? Sorry, go ahead. Well, the hidden cam the difference between the sort of university experiments and your hidden camera type reality TV shows is when the paper is signed. So with, with the university level stuff, they sign a consent form at the beginning, but in a reality TV show, they sign a release form at the end. So like people who are yeah, on, in the, it, but in the hidden camera stuff I'm talking about, like, you know, you see on the plane, I can't remember, but it's the just for last stuff yeah. where they set up these cameras and goofy situations and so on. I assume those people sign releases after the fact because you can't, you know, but they don't sign anything ahead of time. They just see something. But that's usually funny, not traumatic, right? Well, I'm suggesting that would be better results, though, that if if yeah, you, yeah, if you brought a person into a scenario where they encountered it without, without even knowing they're being involved in an experiment and then you ask for the release at the end, how much yeah. does that change the ethics and how much does that... Uh, I don't. I don't think you can inflict trauma on people without at least some possibility, uh, without some signature ahead of time. Like I think that would be pretty damaging okay. to someone. You know, like you you could theoretically scoop someone off the street and put them in a pseudo concentration camp, and then study the results. Well, I they mean, would be forced to be kidnapping. there at that point. Yeah, I mean, they're forced to be there and so on. So I don't think that you can impose artificial situations on people for the sake of experimenting on them if those artificial situations are going to produce trauma rather than sort of make them giggle like the funny stuff does. Right. Well, this uh, is, so I to think some that extent... Would be, that would be, like, I think then you would sort of be liable for some pretty significant emotional distress. But if somebody signs ahead of time and says, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to be part of this open-ended psychological experiment, I don't know the parameters, but, um, you know, let's go in then I think that's, you know, like if you go into a haunted house, you can't say I'm suing them because it was scary. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. So, I mean, the thing that comes to mind is the thing that people keep comparing it to is the show What Would You Do? And those people are, um, I mean, the difference between what they do and what I'm interested in doing is theirs are all horizontal and I'm interested in doing something vertical. 
but they've set up scenarios where like you're in a restaurant and you see a woman like being verbally or physically abusive or a man being verbally or physically abusive to a woman and they see if the people in the restaurant react. That's how the show runs? That's how the show runs. And that strikes me as the kind of trauma I'm talking about. Like, like that could be very distressing, especially if somebody had a history of that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it, it, once you say that it's unethical to cause someone to witness something without consent, there's this weird gray area in the middle. Like, where is the, where is the line? And um, that makes it very difficult for me to sort of design the guidelines that I could use to design an experiment. Well, and it can happen of him. You can cause trauma to people inadvertently, right? So there was a commercial. I don't remember for which car company it was, but there was a commercial where I think it was kind of poor taste. But there was a commercial where a guy was trying to kill himself by locking the garage door and running his car. And the argument was that this car runs so clean, he can't kill himself that way because the emissions are so minimal. So he got frustrated. I didn't see the commercial, but I heard that it sort of it got he got frustrated because he wasn't dying because mm-hmm. the car burns so clean. Okay, I think that's kind of tasteless. But you know what happened was some journalist saw it, and you know her father had killed himself by locking the garage door and running the car. Right. And so she saw this car commercial, and she was sobbing and shaking, and this and that. It's hugely traumatic for her. Right. Now, is that? I don't know. I mean, that that's 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 a tricky area. I I, I mean, I, I obviously have no idea what the answer is, and I, I don't know that there is any sort of objective or or pure answer to these kinds of things. I mean, every act of violence that you portray in a film is something that may have occurred to someone and is incredibly traumatic for them. Yeah. Right. Like I remember talking to a woman who went to see a film many years ago called it's a, I think a film from New Zealand called Once Were Warriors. And in it, there's a scene of uh, the rape of a child, and she herself had been raped as a child, and she found that unbelievable uh, and horrifying and shocking, and it caused intense flashbacks for her and so on. Well, does that mean we can't show anything that's ever going to be traumatic for people? Does this mean you have to – like I, <laughs> I remember some, talking to some guy who was saying, oh, you know, and I quit smoking, and they should have warnings on films, war- warnings. The, cute, the charismatic bad guy smokes throughout the entire film is going to give you nicotine fits like you wouldn't believe, right? Yeah, you caused kind of funny. right? Yeah, it's like, oh, this guy, oh, best cigarette ever. I'm going to go do evil. It's like, okay, I could do the evil thing. I don't want the evil thing, but that cigarette looks damn fine. And so so it is, you know, to what degree can we act in a way to portray truth in society wherein we end up causing discomfort to people, right? So a lot of feminists in the 50s and 60s and 70s said, you know, don't put up with abuse in your marriage. And as a result, a lot of women left their husbands, right? Yeah. And husbands are like, those damn feminists, right? Well, okay, so they cause distress to the husbands um, by making a moral case, right? I make a moral case that adults, adult children don't have to see abusive parents. I can make the choice, whatever, right? Some people have declined to see their abusive parents. The abusive parents are like, ah, that damn show, right? It's, you know, it's hard. To, to what degree do we promote the truth? At the expense of people's discomfort. Well, I mean, if we're not allowed to cause people discomfort, then clearly we have to get rid of laws, right? Because criminals don't want to be caught, and they certainly don't want to go to jail, right? They certainly don't want to experience any neg- negative repercussions for their actions, uh, which is why they generally try to hide <laughs> their actions and try not to get caught. So I don't think that we can live in a society where we don't upset anyone. I think that's not that's not possible. You know, if there's if there's a cure for cancer, 
comes out, then some people who make their living off treating cancer are going to be upset. I'm not saying that they would want to, you know, not have that cure, but clearly, you know, their whole specialty has kind of vanished, right? And so that's, you know, that's going to be upsetting to them. And they've invested huge amounts of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars in becoming people who treat cancer. If there's some pill that cures it, well, you know, they're going to have to go and do some significant retraining to whatever, right? So, I mean, there is always, you know, the people who, who cleaned the shit off the streets in the 19th century didn't like cars because <laughs> cars were played horses and they had no shit to shovel anymore. So, you know, naturally they went into journalism because same kind of thing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, this, this, this level of upset is, um, is something that people trumpet quite a bit. You know, people will say, well, this, this argument, this perspective, it really upsets me. And they think that means something. Well, you know, ending slavery upset all the people who transported, who caught, who bought and sold slaves. You know, their expertise in finding a healthy slave and their expertise in knowing a good price for slaves and the market for slaves, all vanished. So do we not upset? All, all moral progress is upsetting to people who are profiting from the prior immoral situation. Yeah. So anyway, I've sort of pointed out that, that upset is certainly no cause. I mean, if we're not going to upset anyone, then we'd, you know, we can't change anything. And so do you not... think that there's any any way of deriving a criterion that you could use to sort of decide like what was too far or what was too I, I guess Well, you know, I, I think if you have you a would, large oh, enough... would, there would be there would be standards, right? In a free society there would be standards. Well, I'm trying to write those standards is what I'm saying. Well, no, no, but right, but but you can go with common law to some degree. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's this sort of idea of emotional distress and so on. You can go to common law to some degree. Right. So George Zimmerman is currently suing. I think it's NBC who edited the tape of his 911 call to make him appear racist. Right. Right. So they edited his call so that he was saying something like, this guy looks suspicious. He looks black, you know, and it sounds kind of racist. Right. Right. He looks suspicious because he's black. And they edited out the dispatcher saying, you know, is he white, black or Hispanic? (laughs) Yeah. What's his race? Well, he looks black. But, which is actually interesting because he didn't say he is black, just said he looks black. Because, um, you know, hoodie, rain, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. So he's suing because they created an impression of racism by editing a tape and lying about what he said. You know, is he going to win that or not? Well, I think that if you portray someone as a racist by editing material that they put forward, I think that's pretty egregious. So, you know, there's a fair amount of, of sort of existing legal precedents for um, you know, what constitutes uh, I- emotional distress, you know, like if I kidnap your kid and then say I was just playing a prank, well, sorry, <laughs> you know, that's not a funny prank. So it causes unnecessary emotional distress and you would certainly be liable. But so in what sense are these legal precedents legitimate if we're sort of imagining this in a free society? Well, Again, I, I I can't really claim any expertise other than to say you can sort of look up some of the common law stuff around this, okay. and some of it is going to make some kind of sense. And, you know, other things – like, you know, if you have a psychological experiment where you have someone who pretends to stub their toe, I don't think that people can legitimately say, well, that ruined my life, watching someone stub their toe. Right. I don't – You know, yeah, whereas if you have something where somebody – accidentally walks into a propeller and gets decapitated you do some massive special effects thing well people can say well that's pretty fucking traumatic to see right and if you're looking for the perfect area in the middle i mean i don't think you can come up with that 
you know, what if he just loses a fingernail? What if he loses a finger? What if he loses his... Like, I don't think you can come up with that. I think what you would do is you would try and design the experiment to get as much information with as little trauma as possible. And, and that would be part of the creativity that you would have to pursue, right? Mm. Like, if you did an experiment where, uh, 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 you know, something we've all seen, which is uh, a parent uh, slaps a child on the butt. I think, I mean, everybody's seen that because it's, it's just common, right? Right. Then I think you could say, well, that's not outside the bounds of what people would see. But if you did some sort of Homer Simpson thing where he's strangling the child, well, I've never seen that. And that would be pretty traumatic, right? I mean, I, I mean, it's funny because since listening to your show, the first time I actually saw somebody spank a kid, I found it very distressing. So Right. But I mean, what I mean is it's not outside the bounds of what people would see in general. Yeah. And so I think you would try and design the experiment to reproduce something that people would normally see and gauge their reactions. And then I don't think that they could say that it was so traumatic that they would sue you. So because if then was, what? If it was Sorry, like, hang on. Because then if I was, hmm. if I was a representative, let's just say, if I were a lawyer in a free society, I'm not a lawyer, of course, but if I were, then I would say to the person who was going to sue you, I'd say, have you ever seen a child being slapped on the butt before? Right now, of course they have, right? We right. all have. I say, well, did you launch a lawsuit against that parent for exposing you to trauma? And they would say no, right? And then your precedent would have been set, and you'd be fine. So that kind of sounds like if it was if the fake if the instance of fake police brutality was something that somebody could realistically see from a real police officer, then you're commenting on real society. You're you're not presenting anything that they might not see in a shopping mall. Your defense would be if you've seen this before and not launched legal action, then you have no particular right to launch legal action now. Now, if you've never seen this before, then you would be in a more precarious position. So, again, I would try and design it. Again, this is all theory. Who knows, right? But I would try and design it so that it would reproduce things that people had seen before where they would not have pursued legal action ahead of time, and that would be a precedent that would be set. Most people have And of course, if you were exposing brutality. people to what they had seen before, where there was no legal precedence, like I don't think anyone's ever been taken to court for emotional distress because they spanked their child in front of someone right? or, or hit their child on the butt or something like that, you know, particularly because in most places it's legal, right? But I don't think so. There, if there's no precedent for that, for people being, you know, I saw you hit your child on the butt and therefore I'm suing you for emotional distress. Like if there's no precedent, then I think you can show that to people and they would know they would not have a particular legitimate reason to pursue that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It it, it uh, makes it difficult to devise the experiment, though. <laughs> well, sure, of course. But you don't want to be traumatizing people. right? Yeah, no, but I do want it to be. Um... Uh, I, I want it to be effective sort of in the way like like Milgram's experiment was very sanitized. And if you think about it, like it's a it's a curtain and a control panel like they're not witnessing a whole lot. Um, but it was traumatic for people. Sure. So. And that was a situation that they had not been in before. Yeah, that's other true. than in the voting booth, <laughs> right? Which which they wouldn't recognize as that situation. Well, they wouldn't hear the screams when they cast their ballot. So right, right. Yeah, they don't see the people thrown in jail because they, you know, because they're afraid of their kids being on marijuana because they've been bad parents or whatever. Right. So I hope that this was helpful. It's a great question. I mean, I love these gray area questions because they are a real challenge. Uh, but um, you know, that's of course what a um, objective and rational legal system would be would be working to define 
ahead of time. And people want predictability, right? So you'd go to a lawyer ahead of time in a free society. You'd say, this is what I want to do. And you would have somebody who would, in return for guaranteeing you against legal costs, would, you know, help you design the experiment, right? And then part of that design would say, and if you do get sued, I will take on all the costs. So that would be their <laughs> jeopardy, right? Uh, so you would have security uh, if you went through the right channels, um, at least to some degree. Uh, so that would be my suggestion about it. And there would be people who would be experts in this kind of stuff and would be able to give you as great a guarantee as possible that you would be uh, on the fine side uh, of, of you know, the law as far as this went. Does that help? Yeah, I think the, the, the common law, the legal precedent angle is an excellent lead. I'm going to listen to this a couple of times, I think, but I think I, I definitely have more to work with. Okay, good, good. I, I hope so. You know, the law has become pretty bastardized through the state, but, you know, you can look at sort of the common law traditions and the stuff that to a large degree came out of the sort of free market, came out of um, uh, how things worked when people didn't have a centralized political authority with all the incentives to multiply laws like uh, bacteria. Uh, so it's not a bad place to to start looking at. And of course, Steph Kinsella uh, and a bunch of other people got some great writings on, on some of this. So, you know, look at some of the common law stuff. You can look at the Guild stuff. You can look at the laws that were developed in Ireland during its thousand year statelessness. It's not a bad place to start. So I hope that helps. Yeah, thanks you a lot. You have to reinvent the wheel is what I'm saying. All right, so let's move to the next caller. Last caller of the day. Thank you, everyone, so much for your patience. All right, Ross, you are up. Good afternoon, Stefan. Let the sausage fest parade continue, Ross. <laughs> how you doing? Uh, I'm well. How are you doing? Fantastic. I just had uh, uh, some questions on um, how a free society would deal with uh, something along the lines of what happened in Russia on February 15th, 2013 with uh, the asteroid explosion. I don't know how much you know about it, uh, but it was um, particularly incredible because it was only about 53 feet in diameter, traveling at about uh, 18 kilometers a second, just a little over 41,000 miles per hour, and managed to cause 1,400 injuries and actually collapse a couple buildings on roofs uh, and shatter some windows. And um, a lot of this uh, research as far as tracking these meteorites and of course, our space programs are a government function currently, and uh, one could even argue that it perhaps has been one of the most successful uh, as far as, um, you know, a reduction of microelectronics, uh, various things that the um, pursuit of exploration, the space exploration, uh, these have provided great technologies for our society. But also, uh, this... you can't expect me to get behind that, can you? Are well, you really, well, I you mean, really think I will. Uh... I mean, the, the uh, NASA, of course, the Apollo 11, which actually today is the 44th anniversary of us landing on the moon. Um, uh, well, not us, but go on. Right, yeah. <laughs> A couple the, of guys, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the uh, NASA has had some amazing uh, benefits uh, as far as technology. Um, uh, some optics used in the Hubble have actually allowed uh, doctors to detect breast cancer earlier. Um, of course, the, you know, computers. Hey, look, I mean, and, I'm not. You know, I'm not going to doubt any of that. And, you know, government spending creates jobs. Right, right, right. So but, what? But, but, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not the seen that's important. It's the unseen. Correct. Right. So how, how much technology didn't come into existence because people were taxed or inflated or indebted. Oh, yes. Yeah. To yeah. the point where they couldn't start their own companies. Right, right. And, and I mean, now if you look at SpaceX, you know, uh, NASA's talking about, uh, well, how much would it cost to, to get to Mars and SpaceX, which I don't know if you know is a private corporation who's um, – contracting now with nasa you know they can do it for a third of the price than what nasa can and i think that speaks a lot for the free market but um 
Anyways, well, I, you know, I I said I hate to say it, but I mean, <laughs> this is my particular perspective, so I wouldn't fund it myself. I mean, right. other people obviously have a different perspective, but who the fuck wants to go to Mars? Right, of yeah. all places. Well, I mean, well, you know, that, like yeah, that's that's kind dead, of irrelevant. Dead desert. Uh, I mean, just go to the Mojave Desert and don't you know breathe every breathe once every thirty seconds and you're done. Right. I mean, it just it, like to me, what a ridiculous waste of resources. Like, ooh, we have some moon rocks. Well, right. fuck. Well, Who cares? I guess my question no, here. No, how is... about how about some jobs for impoverished youth that could have happened? Anyway, go on. Right, right. Um, no, and I definitely see all those points. But as far as a, a you know, a, a polysized asteroid, which is an asteroid that has a collision course, uh, or not a collision course, but a, a same trajectory that could intercept with Earth. Um, well, but... there was a huge one that happened. I don't know why Russia is such an asteroid magnet. I guess because it's so big. But in Siberia, I think in 1910, there was a huge one. Yes, the that you know, flattened thousands of acres of forest, and I mean, it was just a monstrous. People think it might have even been part of a black hole or some godforsaken thing right. like that. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, with the basic, you know, so, you know, it's it's either a risk that people are willing to pay to alleviate or not. Right. Right. So, so the question is, okay, so I've got a house, and that house could get hit by an asteroid. Correct. Now, am I willing to pay for asteroid insurance? Well, if I'm not, then I guess some charity could, could track this stuff or whatever. But if the vast majority of people aren't willing to pay for any asteroid insurance, then it's either going to be charity or, or nothing that's going to protect people from this, right? Now, if it's like 50 cents a year to have some weapon in orbit that's going to blow up or divert some monster asteroid that could create some godforsaken catastrophe on the planet then yeah i think people would do that i mean i would 50 cents a year i could probably manage that um you know if it's five thousand dollars a year i guess i'll take my chances right with, you know with with not having that kind of protection but of course the free market would try and find the cheapest conceivable way to do this right like so i mean when it comes to global warming you can read this book called cool it by bjorn lomberg who's a smart shockhead fellow he's actually been on this show which is how i know he's smart but, um, you know, he puts forward a – I can't remember the details – but he puts forward a a, um, a way of dealing with, with removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. It costs $100 million or something like that. And, you know, why have you never heard of it? Um, well, it's scientifically validated. It's It's been, you know, gone through rigorous peer review process and so on. And why have you never heard of it? Well, because it's not an insurance situation where people who are concerned about global warming – you know, if it, let's say, I don't know, a quarter of the world's population is concerned about global warming, and that's what, 1.5, 1.7 billion people. And let's say only half of those have enough money. So it's going to be about a dime a piece, 10 cents a piece to solve global warming in a free market environment. Well, shit, I'll pay that. I mean, I don't even believe in global warming as sort of an anthropogenic disaster scenario, but what the hell? I could be wrong. And, it, you know, if it's a dime, you know, by the time you finish selling me on it, I, it's cost me more than a dime's worth of my time. So here's your dime. Go solve global warming. But that's how it works in a free society. Right. And so, you know, would it would it cost a huge amount of money to have some, you know, radar that would detect these kinds of asteroids and something? I don't know. Maybe it's a buck a year for, you know, a couple hundred million people. Well, I think yeah, that... I'd pay that. I think right now the uh, the total NASA budget is uh, a half of a penny of every tax dollar. So uh, well, and that's NASA, right? Right, right. I mean, they're doing a whole lot of useless shit, and they got a whole bunch of right. dead weight uh, sitting around doing nothing and pushing papers and you know 
It's like that famous meme that was floating around Facebook, you know, computers in 1980, computers now, you know, went from this big ass box room to something that fits on your phone. Cell phones, 1980, this big office cereal box, which you had to point at the satellite outside. Don't be under a tree. You know, there's these tiny cell phones and, you know, space technology, 1980, space shuttle, space technology, 2008, space shuttle, right? It doesn't progress. Right. Coercion freezes everything in time. So, I mean, it would be, it would be ridiculously cheap. Uh, because it would be such a collectivized risk and uh, such a focused solution. So that would be my guess uh, about it. And, you know, who wouldn't pay that? I mean, I think uh, I think you, everyone would pay, you know, 50 cents or whatever a year to make sure that the city didn't get blown up from an asteroid. I think I think people would do that. Well, and I I think that a lot of the, uh, the lack of support for uh, such a thing comes from a lack of education. And I think that has a lot to do with, obviously, the, the government being in charge of it. But... Um, uh, these Apollo-sized asteroids—they're greater than uh, a kilometer in size, and and you wouldn't just be talking about a city. You know, you'd be talking about uh, all of humanity, uh, or at least right. And let's say, of- let's say that yeah. But even if people didn't want to pay, then the insurance companies would pay, like you, because it would be cheaper for them. We assume well, yeah, there has to be some kind of cost-benefit analysis, right? And obviously, the destruction of a city would result in billions or tens of billions of dollars of payouts from the insurance company so they would pay anyway right because it would just be cheaper or they'd say well you're not covered for asteroid damage right so if an asteroid so you know if you're not covered for asteroid damage but for 50 cents a year you can get coverage for asteroid damage and people would pay of course they would because they'd be so much richer now let's <laughs> say so much richer in a free society have 10 times the income that they have now you're like within a generation if we had a free society tomorrow, like literally people would have 10 times the income that they have now within a generation. And that's not just my guess. I mean, that's that's fairly well established, right? I mean, it's based upon the argument about regulation 1948 to the present that I made earlier in the show. So, you know, it would actually, you know, if you have 10 times the income, then 50 cents a year becomes 5 cents a year. Now, would any sane human being, for, for the sake of 5 cents a year, not pay that to have protection from asteroid damage? Well, I mean, of course you would. I mean, who the hell cares about a nickel a year, right. you know, compared to what might happen if an asteroid hits your neighborhood. So um, so I think it'd be pretty easy to deal with. And if I could just squeeze in, I uh, happen to work with a lot of uh, statists and um, one <laughs> of them. One. <laughs> yeah. I knew there was at least one person out there who did that. Um, I encountered a, a pretty interesting argument in regards to this because uh, I find this particular stu- uh, science uh, – uh, astrophysics, that kind of stuff, very interesting. And when he was talking about, well, the government had to take the initial risk before the free market would step in, and and you know we had things like SpaceX um, kind of come online, uh, and that if the government wasn't there to take the risk, we never would have gone there in the first place, and you know we wouldn't have a good understanding of the universe that we do now. Yeah. Well, first of all, the government wasn't taking any risks because they weren't spending their own money. Okay, I mean, that would be point. my first argument. Like, what the hell risk are you talking about? Right. I mean, no, no government official was personally liable for the success or failure of any particular program. I mean, that's that's called the free market, where if you start something and it fails, um, I mean, when when the rockets didn't work, you know, how much loss did each government official incur or each engineer? Well, zero. In fact, they generally, when it didn't work, they got to, the government is the only entity that gets rewarded for failure. Right? I mean, with government, you know, if the program works, well, it's working. So let's do more. 
And if the program doesn't work as well, it's underfunded, so we need more, right? So, right. so the government wasn't taking any risk. And there's no way to know whatsoever when the right time was for human beings to go into space. There's no way to know in any way, shape, or form when the right time was for human beings to go into space. You know, without the government, it might have been in the 1940s. Without the First and Second World War destroyed massive amounts of human and financial capital, it might have been the First and Second World War, by, you know, in those years, which it wouldn't have occurred without the state. You know, it might be 20 years from now. Who knows? I mean, maybe you and I would be able to go to space for $5,000 now if the free market had been allowed to operate since the 1960s. And that would be fantastic. I'd love to go to space. Hell, I'd love to go to the moon and Mars. It'd be fantastic. Yay. <laughs> but, you know, I don't get to do that because they blew all this money in premature displays of pointless ability. <laughs> right. You know, so, you know, if they went too soon, then they had to spend a huge amount of money, which meant that uh, the debt and the you know, inflation and all that kind of crap. And of course, they, they drew everyone out into this useless paramilitary NASA situation. They drew everyone out who might have actually created passenger flight to the moon, right? Right. And that's pretty tragic. How awful is that? So, you know, people who say, well, you know, the government took on this risk and therefore we have all these benefits. Well, you, you tell me the risk the government took on. I mean, they got to buy votes by handing out lots of money to companies. Ooh, what a great risk for a politician that is. You know, right. go against the crowd. You know, they got a whole bunch of nationalism and patriotism. Because remember, the space program was free at the time. You know, I mean, because they just funded it through debt. I don't remember them cutting any other government services, right? I don't remember anyone saying, well, we can't have the space program, but we have to eliminate the welfare state. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, they basically got to buy a bunch of patriotism and buy a bunch of votes and buy a bunch of mindless cheering of, you know, big penis rockets um, for, for, you know, for, by going into debt. You know, it's like saying to people, do you want a grand spectacle for free? Well, sure. I guess so, <laughs> right? Uh, but um, so, you know, there was no debt. In fact, it was all just politically advantageous um, to, for, to people as a whole. And uh, it was all complete nonsense. So, well, and a lot you of, know, and I always get, you know, I always get these complaints. Oh, you're anti-research. And it's like, no, I'm just, I'm just anti-coercion. That's all. I just don't think no matter how pretty the rockets are, that it justifies them being funded through coercion or, you know, the enslavement of the next generation through debt. Right. Well, and I think, uh, you know, the very funding of the space program was, wasn't for research from the government. Uh, at least I don't believe it was from government perspective simply because, you know, Russia did something and we were like, Oh, we, you know, well, we gotta, you know, we gotta get up there and we gotta do, it, it was kind of more reactive. I love that. Yeah. We, we gotta beat socialism right. by expanding the government right. and creating exactly. more socialism in the space program. It's like, how exactly is that beating Russia? If you turn NASA into basically a Russian style socialist program, I mean, that's just so bizarre to me. You know, it's like saying, well, the guy across the street kidnapped his wife. And that's terrible. You know, you shouldn't have a wife by kidnapping her. So the way I'm going to fight against that is go kidnap my own wife. It's like, I don't think you really understand what opposing a principle <laughs> means. I mean, it's just terrible. Right. You know, it's like England saying, uh, we, you know, we're, we're going to fight to the death against national socialism. So let's nationalize everything right after the war. Uh, I think you do not use this word in the, mean, in the meaning to which it's intended, right? So, you know, with that tip to the great Wallace, Sean, um, if you haven't seen Princess Bride, you really need to. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is just the ridiculousness of, of what people call progress, right? I, I, Stefan, I really appreciate you. Uh, just finished watching uh, a couple weeks ago your video on spanking and uh, it showed it to my wife, and it's really... Uh, helped us to be better parents and I really appreciate everything you're doing for us and I hope you keep it up.
Oh, thank you so much. I uh, I hope so too. And you know, one of the things I'm the most happy about with the recent video success of the Martin Zimmerman video is that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, potentially about a million people or over a million people, if you count the podcast, a million and a half people have been exposed to a strong anti-spanking message. Yes. I mean, that's more important to me than the criminal trial or who's guilty or who's innocent. The fact that people have been exposed to a strong principled anti-spanking message um, is the most important thing to me. Even if only 10% of parents end up questioning spanking out of that, you know, that could be 100,000 people who've stopped spanking their kids, or at least who are questioning it. I mean, what a great weekend's work that is. And what a huge step forward uh, in the planet that is. What a way to break the cycle of violence. And that to me is, is the major value of uh, that whole video series. So thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for your support. Thank you for your questions. Thank you, Mike, for wrangling the sausage conga line known as the Freedom Main Radio Sunday Show listener queue. Have yourselves a wonderful week, everyone. Um, just finishing up the research on the video about Edward Snowden, and uh, maybe touching a little bit on Bradley Manning. And uh, thank you, everybody, for your support. That makes all this work possible. If you'd like to help out, fdrurl.com forward slash donate, or just share like crazy, whatever we've got. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful week, everyone. I'll talk to you soon.